So I went back to the office, even though I hadn't been there in a while. And it was like very empty. And I was there and I met this guy I used to work with named Jay. And uh, we, I, I brought him back. Like I met him, I think randomly in the street. And uh, I'm like, hey, you want to come up to the office? It was in me and this other guy that I worked with. And we were sitting there. And he had this like birthday cake. He's like, yeah, my son um, just had his birthday. And the name was actually written on the cake. It was like Asahi or something, something like that. <clears throat> and he's like, you know, he's he's three years old now. I'm like, wow, it's been a long time since you left the company. He's like, he's like yeah. So... We were sitting, I guess there were like two wings of the building. And there was just like this huge, like arch ceiling. It had like glass looking outside and green, like dark greens and golds and reds. It was almost like a, like an old, what they call arcade, like sort of an interior space with a curved ceiling. Um, almost like, you know, almost like sort of that, yeah, you could see the outside through it. It was really beautiful. And there were just like banks of just rows of computers, right? And uh, and I was I was like sort of I had just recently tried to go back to the office, and uh, there was uh, I was working at one computer, but like I didn't have my own computer anymore. I didn't have my own stuff there anymore. And uh, I'm like, where is it? We used to work, Jay, when we were doing that pre-press stuff was it here or he's like no no it was on the other side he's like okay oh yeah that's before they that's before they remodeled the whole thing so i was remembering back to uh me and jay worked at in the pre-press department so i remembered what it looked like i was recalling what it looked like it was like uh again with that sort of dark green color on all the walls and stuff that very persistent color scheme and we used to just work in pre-press which yeah and it's funny because I can swear that was a, a dream I had years ago, the one in that pre-press place, because it seemed like a dream I had years ago. Anyway, um, so we were talking. It's like, oh, it's good to see you, Jay. And uh, I'm trying to think what else it was, how our conversation went. But I was sort of like, oh, it, was it here or there? <laughs> I was kind of like amused at how I didn't even remember it. But then I'm like, I, I don't even know which computer's mine anymore. I, I, I can't even find my computer. So anyway, I did go to that other side and I was, it was getting later at night. And I just went on someone's computer, I think to play a game. I had some kind of game I wanted to play on the computer. It was at the end of the row, so it was like uh, if it, if the basic layout of the building was a big H, there were two of those long hallways with the curved ceiling, and then there was a, some sort of section connecting them. This was on the other side, but also sort of if you were looking at it like an H, and turn the H on its side, I was on the lower the bottom edge on the on the left hand side and then I went up to the the top edge the far left 
right, was where I was sitting next to someone. And there were some other people there. Again, the people around me, as usual, in dreams, very vague. You know, they're people, but they really have no identity. Um, so it was like, it was a game that was meant to be like a series of retro games with screens like old like old video games. I think I was inspired by, like, yesterday I was just, just randomly, there's a game I see on Steam sometimes called Annabelle, which is sort of like a, a mashup of old video games. It was something like that with different screens from different old video games. So I had just heard about it, so I was playing it on this computer. It wasn't even my computer, but I guess you could log on to any computer. Um, but then, like, so we, we thought one of the supervisors was coming, so I, I tried to, you know, alt-tab, you know, and it, it wasn't working. I'm like, okay, let me... So then I tried to just... I'm like, Alt-Tab, Alt-Tab, and then Control-Alt-Delete. Like, how can I get this off the screen? So finally I had to just turn off the actual screen. I, I, I you know... I'm like, this is crazy. I, why couldn't I... I didn't want people to see I was playing games. Um. <clears throat> so... Then the supervisor left, and I, I turned it back on, and... uh and I got in the system, and it, and it was like, uh, it was a, I think it was a Mac, but someone had altered it so that it looked like the old like original Windows or Linux systems. It had those kind of windows in the, in the user interface, right? And then there was almost like a level of, uh, it was like a virtual space inside the computer almost. So... It was like uh, one of those really old portable computers that had a very, the screen was very wide but very short up and down. And it was projecting the rest of the image on this wall in the back in this virtual space. And I'm like, oh, whoever whoever uh, modified this, I really approve of their aesthetics because they have cool, like, it was almost like, I think it was one of the Sonic the Hedgehog bonus stages where he had like these angel fish that were like polygonish, and uh, it was sort of like that um, that aesthetic of that uh, that eighties aesthetic they have now. What is it called? Cold Wave or something like that? Not Cold Wave, but something else. Uh, but you know what I'm talking about. The uh, you know like neon sunsets and Easter Island heads, things like that. Chill wave, maybe. Anyway, so I was trying to like get rid of. I was trying to close the game, but like towards the top of the projected screen, there was all of these little like weird little characters running around. I'm like, oh, that must be one of the features of this other game I was playing. These these weird little like characters, almost like little hieroglyphics, were like running around. There's like a, a staircase with red carpeting, and the, and they were they were all when I when I moved the cursor up there they all ran into like these side doors and closed the doors and were like babbling and screaming and stuff. I'm like, oh, they must have been from that other game. So I recalled this other game uh, that I was playing that seemed to be really strangely related to Cairo Shootout, a real early Macintosh uh, game. I think it was by that guy Dwayne Blame, the the young guy who died. 
He made a bunch of games on the Mac, shareware games. But this game was much different. It was like a place you went to in a mall, almost like it was like an attraction, a place you would walk through, almost like an escape room or something. And it, it basically was based on, um, I think it's the character Death from uh, Sandman, because the Eye of Horus was very prominent in the game. But this character, it's sort of this young woman who represented Death, and also the Egyptian mythos. And I went in there, but it was like sort of after hours and there was no one there and it was closed. But I remember going there and it was like three people that worked at the place and three other people that were the guests, they would like stare, they would like make eye contact and each one of them was like entranced by the other, like just incredible chemistry between these people and then you went up like an elevator and it was like a ride and I remember when I first went in there was like a booth to the left and um, you were hoping that there was someone there that would sort of oh hello um, hi yeah oh you want to do the ride it, it costs X, X, X amount of money something like that so then there was a whole other part where I went, there was, I, I saw someone I knew in the city and I followed them into this restaurant that I had gone to the night before. See, there was a lot of remembering back on things in the stream and it was like, really, that's just so weird, remembering back on things that happened previously. That's not a usual dream thing, right? So a lot of people from my old days at Video Game Connections were sitting around this table and then the person, it may have been that the other another Jay, who Jay Foreman, who was on the exit ramp uh, recently. He's, I think he said something like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, I think Frank's coming, but we're gonna have to feed him vegan food." Right. So I sat down as as if I was invited. I'm like, "Hey, how are you guys doing? I didn't know you guys were getting together," because I wasn't invited to it, because I I had been there the night. But I I think I did dream of being there the night before pre previously at this restaurant and they had some vegan food I think but there was another part where I was uh, sitting outside somewhere and this helicopter came by really low kind of a tan helicopter so I took out my phone and went on that flight tracker app and again it's weird because usually the phone apps don't work in dreams but in this case it worked and it's and it showed a symbol that it was a military helicopter and I saw it took off from, uh, I think it was Teterboro Airport. So I went over there. And uh, I think I was driving. Previously, I had some sort of situation where all my stuff, all the stuff in my pockets, like my wallet, car keys and everything, was sort of out loose. So I put it all in this white paper bag. And then I... Uh, you know, when I got to the airport, I got out of the car. I think it was my old Jeep, actually. My 96 Jeep Wrangler, my 94 Jeep Wrangler. I used to have... I was looking at the map. The airport was there. But the entrance to it was like the, almost this sort of like abandoned field. And then there was almost like a, like a garage. 
like a brick building that was open on each side that you would drive through. <clears throat> and uh, so I got there and there were like these, it was almost like a forest at that point. And it was kind of, there were all these people like working, all these like construction workers, there's workmen. It was like very suspicious. And uh, so I, I was walking and trying to figure it out. And at some point I realized like, oh my God, I locked my car keys in, in the Jeep. I was all concerned about that. But where did I go after that? Oh, man. I think there was more after that. I, I don't know if I can remember that, though. But then later on, there was a point where I arrived at this house that there was some, some, some sort of big gathering there. And I had all my stuff. I had my, my white plastic bag and everything. And I was going to stay there for the night, I think. Anyway, that's what I can remember of my dreams this morning. This cold medicine is really uh, giving me some wild dreams. Uh, 8.05 a.m. on Thursday, October 20th, 2022. But yeah, I thought... Uh, yeah, Some of the features of the dream were very strange. Like actually using a computer and having it somewhat function and hitting like Alt-Tab or alt delete, alt-tab, you know, alt-whatever, delete, control-alt-delete. Usually, the technology doesn't really work in dreams, so I had a little bit of trouble with it, but it was actually functioning better than usually in dreams, and also using a phone app in a dream, you know. And then the endless recalling back to things that recently happened in the dream. Some slightly different uh, dream features in this dream. But was there an upgrade to the dream system in our reality or something? I don't know. I don't know. Hey, it's later on. It's cold out here on the porch. Yeah. I feel I may finally have gotten over the the midpoint of this cold. Um, I've been taking the Alka-Seltzer Plus and also uh, during the day and then also NyQuil at night, and uh, yeah, it definitely puts you in kind of a mental haze. Uh, both of them contain dextromethorphan, which I think is kind of affects the affects your thoughts and things in a way. Suddenly, I haven't been overdoing it. I've been taking the recommended dose, but still, it just makes you feel rather blah, you know. But this afternoon, for the first time since I started taking the cold medicine, I decided. I don't feel like taking it, so I feel like, uh, you know, I don't need it as much. Um, it's just a feeling, you know. I think I've had about enough of that cold medicine. <laughs> can really knock you out. Yeah. So big news out of uh, the UK today. Liz Truss, the recently appointed Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, uh, has, has resigned after only, what, 44 days in office? Yeah, it seems like they're having a lot of chaos there. They forced uh, Boris Johnson to resign. Then they chose Liz Truss as his replacement, and now she didn't work out. So she's resigned. they got to choose someone else. They're saying they might bring Boris, jo Boris Johnson back. It is, uh, yes, yeah, the parliamentary system, you know. Uh, it's a bit different, you know. Than, I know in the U.S. we have had a president resign. Nixon uh, resigned. Uh, but it it was, uh, you know, 
after a long scandal, and then the vice president. It's, it's as if you know. Imagine, you know. Well, he also. He, it was. It's sort sort of like a Nixon level kerfuffle over there in in, in England because Nixon's vice president, of course, Spiro Agnew, had to resign for whatever reason, scandals, and then um, I guess I think it was House Speaker Gerald Ford was installed as vice president. You know. A, Certified or ratified or voted on by the Senate, and then when Nixon resigned, Ford became the president, even though he wasn't elected. And it, it seems like that level of chaos is going on now in in Britain. Um, from what I can tell, from what little I've read and heard about this, um, Liz Truss uh, went in with this very uh, like a very specific economic policy, which sounds a lot like the old trickle down economic system voodoo economics where you like lower taxes on the corporations and the rich hopefully they'll they'll hire more poor people <laughs> I probably have that wrong but essentially though by doing that that policy seemed to crash the British economy and so first she fired her um, guy in charge of the financial stuff the something of the exchequer the I forget the, I forget the actual name of it, but of the of the position. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, whew, craziness over there. But now they they have to get a new prime minister in by uh, a, a a week from tomorrow, right? Next Friday, there might even be a new one this coming Monday. Yeah. So hopefully things will calm down over there at some point. We have. A number of listeners over there in, in the British Isles. So hopefully, hopefully your your government will get straight straighten itself out. Come on! No, Queen Elizabeth dies and everything's falling apart already. What the hell? Anyway, wow, that turtle dove does not look uh, does not look very well. That is an unwell turtle dove over there. Uh oh. Well, listen, you know, birds get sick, birds die. It's just you don't really see the ground strewn with dead birds, but... Wow, not looking too good. Remember in my uh, failed science fiction novel, Severe Repair, there was this uh, ancient, like, abandoned interdimensional transit system, and all the stops were named after, like, birds that were injured or unwell or sick or something. (laughs) Like, like, Like an unwell robin or a... An injured blue jay. The, all, the, all the stops are named after that. Yes. That darn, that darn failed science fiction novel of mine. It still haunts my, 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 my visions and dreams, and hopes and aspirations. But it, it's, it, it crashed out, man. You know. I tried. It just wasn't for me. Writing science fiction wasn't for me. What do you want? So anyway, I did look up this guy, Dwayne Bleem. The last name is B-L-E-H-M. I'm choosing to pronounce it Bleem. It could be Blem, Blame, or Bleem. Dwayne Blem. Dwayne Blame. Dwayne Bleem. Dwayne Blem. Wait, Blem, Bleem, or Blem. Wait, I thought there were three pronunciations. Oh, Blem. Blame or bleem, yes. So yeah, he was a guy who, 
you know, this is this is one of these lost worlds of software. Okay, um, right. This world was the world of Macintosh shareware in the early days, in the eighties, right? Nineteen eighties Macintosh games, and I was very much into that, as I did buy a Mac in. Um, yeah, I got my Mac in eighty nine, and I started getting a lot of. Uh, yeah, it was eighty. Was it? Or maybe it was eighty eight. Maybe it was, I think it was 89, I got my Mac Plus. Right? Loved it. What's a completely different world than Macintosh today? Um, and a lot of the games were shareware games. This is an idea where there was no internet to distribute games or anything. These games were essentially like uh, demos, and then you would pay them money to get a code to unlock the full game, right? And I know a lot of phone games are like that. It's free, but then you got to pay money to unlock the full version. It's very much like shareware. But the Mac world was much smaller. You know, it was a much smaller world of gaming. And someone like Dwayne Bleem um, with Cairo Shootout, was it Zero Gravity, and a few other games, um, was really popular and very famous in that world. And uh, so you would get, you would buy floppy disks filled with shareware and you could share them with your friends and these really cool games to play and if you really liked them you could get them unlocked I did not know as how could you know there was no internet back then Dwayne had passed away in 1988 now I mentioned I thought he was a kid I thought he was like a teenager turns out he was 36 and uh, and passed away in 1988 uh, his his setup for because I don't think email was even a thing back then really you know it was not a thing my computer was not online it was you have to understand this I know this is hard to understand this computer was sitting on a desk and it had I had a twenty megabyte external hard drive a single three and a half inch floppy drive and that's it it was not connected to any phone line or internet or anything. All right, I did not have a modem back then. I didn't get a modem until a few years later. Probably like 92 or 93 I got a modem. And I went on AOL at first. I was not really a, a big like BBS guy. I barely went on BBSs at all. Though in the early days of my e-zine, a so a week, in mid-94 to mid-95, I did upload it to a local BBS. But that was my sort of the extent of my BBS knowledge. Um... So I, you know, lots of people, probably tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people would have had access to these games and to unlock the game, right? Each game generated a random like five-digit number um, and you just mail it to this guy in Kansas, Dwayne Bleem, and you threw, you put like $3 bills or something. It was $3 or something like that. You would put the dollar bills in the the envelope and you'd mail it to him and then he'd mail you back the unlock code right it was like encrypted so i remember getting back a letter from his parents we're sorry to tell you that Dwayne has passed away here's your three dollars back we don't have any idea how he figured out these codes sorry and uh right imagine a world before internet and all these other things like these people were inundated with mail and they were they were actually reaching out to people on the early bulletin board systems and the Usenet to try to get the word out that he had died and not to keep sending them like huge amounts of letters. Imagine how terrible it was. Now, they never revealed in any of this information I found the cause of death, 
so we don't know. But imagine dealing with you know your 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 son dying and then getting all this these letters for his computer program. You know, it's really wild. So I remember getting that letter, and some other people also talked about uh, getting that letter from from Dwayne Bleem's parent, Dwayne Bleem's parents, parents. Um, but those his games were subsequently released. The source code is out there, but it seems like they're still like the locked versions. I'm trying to see if I can find this. Yeah, on the Internet Archive, it's the Dwayne Bleem collection. Again, Dwayne D U A N E. B-L-E-H-M Dwayne Bleem Collection Let's see if I can play some of the games here Because the archive has uh, A A Mac emulator here That I'm sure will run, run fine on a browser on my phone <laughs> Considering how much more powerful These little pocket supercomputers We have now that, than these Original Mac Let's see if I can get this going here it actually boots up the system. Let's see if I can get this going here. I don't know if I'm going to... Eh, God. Yeah. I think this prefers a, a mouse. It's, I don't think I'm able to do it here. I'm able to move the cursor left and right, but not up and down. So something about the, how, the way this, this emulation is working. Anyway, you can, cl- you can check it out. what it says. Dwayne Bleem was a Macintosh developer who produced several popular games in the mid-1980s before sadly passing away age 36 on June 6, 1988. His death was publicly announced in the Delphi Mac Digest of 12th July, 1988, posted to Usenet. Comp Mac Digest. I need to post is for a friend. This is to inform you that hometown software no longer exists. Dwayne Bleem passed away unexpectedly on June 6, 1988. We would like to withdraw his games Cairo Shootout and Puzzle from the network. We leave Skycopter in his memory. Please, no more orders. Signed, Dwayne's parents, Norman and Diane Bleem. Uh, I am posting this note for Dwayne's parents. For those of us who knew Dwayne and admired what he could do with a Mac, we're going to miss him, his talent, his thoughts, and most of all, his friendship. We are working on the key codes for his games if he was clever. We figure out just how how he did it. We have his parents' permission to post it for public domain. As those of us who knew Dwayne, he never really tried to get rich or rip anyone off, only to cover expenses expenses and have pocket money. Those orders received after his death will be returned with the money sent in and hopefully a key code. Bear with us. For those of you who wrote in and we're personal. I know you got a personal note back. A touch with a genius. Dwayne, a man who touched our lives and enriched it. We're going to miss you. Signed, Kent C. And he puts his phone number there. Wow. Let's see. Yeah, so Zero Gravity, Cairo Shootout, Stunt Copter, and Puzzles. You can play them on there. So, very nice. Very nice that they posted it there. Again, the emulation is running, but I can't get this darn cursor to go up and down on the phone. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> and sort of unrelated to that, weirdly, I also saw an article about a new disk archive search engine. There's so many of these old disks on the Internet Archive from early computer history that you can search through and find things. 
I gotta find the link to that though. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll find it later on, hopefully. Okay, I just found it. It's called Disc Master. D I S C M A S T E R. Disc Master. Uh, it's discmaster.textfiles.com. And you can search. 113 over 100 and uh, 113 million files 58 million images 26 million text files 8 million unknown files <laughs> all sorts of files <laughs> nice I tried searching earlier and it, it said the search engine was kind of busted yeah October 20th that's today 305 p.m. Eastern time yeah so that three-hour ETA came and went. We are still actively working on it. Probably at least another three hours. Ugh. Why so long? It's 255 gigabytes of database data being loaded into RAM from disk. It takes some time. We have a plan, though, and to prevent further downtimes in the future, even if the database acts up. Wow, that's so today they're, they're really working on this database. It's an experimental website to browse and search vintage computer files from archive.org. Thousands of new files are added daily. Interesting. So hopefully they'll get that search back. Get it going. But it looks like you can you can browse though. Let's see. Digital magazines. Interesting. Oh, Blender. Wow. Oh, cool. They have all these old. I, I've talked about this. Those the old uh, digital the magazines on CD-ROM. Blender. I still have a bunch of those. A uh, bunch of them. Uh, CD-ROM magazine, Cybermax. What is it? Not safe for work? What the hell? What is Cybermax? Let's see. Hmm. Oh, it's an ISO. Do they do they mount it for you, or do they uh, they help you with that? That may not be the best word to use for this not safe for work one, but uh, I don't know. If pictures of the discs, digital culture stream. Wow, and and it, it yeah it does mount the ISO for you, and you can look inside the ISO. Wow, interesting. I, I'm trying to see if I can find anything useful in here. I don't know. Interactive entertainment, go digital. I remember, I remember that magazine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is so like so '90s. Look at this. Go digital. I may have had this one. Nice. So what's in the ISO here? Uh, this is also not safe for work. Okay. <laughs> Quite not safe for work. Go digital. Music? Only 26 music discs? What do we have here? Interactive entertainment CD-ROMs? This looks like a great site. It's really cool. It's brand new. Brand new site. The EXE? No, it doesn't. It doesn't launch a, an emulator for you. Oh well. Oh well. <laughs> Interesting though. <laughs> nice. Good stuff. Discmaster. Good. I was puffing on a cigar there, but it tasted a bit strange. I don't know if it's just a bad cigar or my sense of taste. Definitely, I think it was two nights ago. I lost my sense of taste completely. It was quite disconcerting. I had a few potato chips, and I couldn't taste them at all. 
but I could just sort of feel the acidity of them and stuff, but I couldn't taste the delicious taste of potato chips. <laughs> Though I did get, I, the next day I got my sense back somewhat, so it's partially back. I know they said with the original COVID from 2020, a lot of people lost their sense of taste and smell for months or even years, or perhaps permanently, which is very scary. Very scary indeed. It's a bit later now, and uh, yeah, I just logged into Magic Arena, and uh, I had heard about this. Post Malone now has a... Uh, Let me turn off the sound here. He has new. He has this, like his own challenge on Magic Arena. Um, Post Malone is a singer or a musician or something. I don't know any of his music, but I know he's a guy that has a lot of face tattoos. That's the only thing I know about him. But he uh, apparently is a huge Magic the Gathering fan, and he loves to play Commander. So they worked with him to. What am I doing? Whenever Capitech record deals combat damage, you may remove a death cut uh, exile target artifact. No, no, decline. Uh, he's a huge fan of Magic Gathering, so he made five uh, historic brawl decks. Historic brawl is kind of the closest you can get to Commander on Magic Arena right now. Um, and you can win all sorts of cosmetics, apparently. I just I just booted this up on my phone. Um, yeah, so it's kind of cool. He's like... Uh, now I know he has face tattoos and he loves Magic the Gathering. I wonder if his music is good, though. I don't know. Maybe I should listen to his music now. It's all cross-promotional. Yeah, this, this deck is, uh, you know, it's a green deck. Eliwick Tumblestrom is a uh, planeswalker. She's like a bard in the Dungeons & Dragons universe. And she uh, can... Um, hold on one second. Hey, I'm back. Yeah, it was my father calling. I, I, um, he's, he's doing pretty good. I was talking to him for a little while. Let me uh, boot up the magic here on the laptop and uh, see about this whole Post Malone situation. I did see a few video. I saw a part, part of a video a few months ago, Post Malone playing Commander with, with uh, a group. Let me just look up like Post Malone's music. Like it, You know, the thing is, that I, I have... You know, I don't like the new muse, any new music, but my theory has always been maybe at some point, like, new music will get good again. All right, here's the first link, a song called Circles. So maybe this is good. Maybe this is a good song. I don't know. I mean, when you get those face tattoos, you got to hope your uh, artistic career takes off because, you know... Kind of makes it hard to get a job, I guess, if you have face tattoos. That's the rule. That's the common wisdom, at least. All right, so he's a knight, a medieval knight, and uh, he just fought a battle. He survived the battle. When he opened his eyes, they were white, but then they turned normal, and there's all these dead knights and stuff all around. Yeah, I don't like this style of singing. Listen, this music is not for me. I'm sorry. But maybe other people like him. It is good. It's good for them. Let's see what we got. Post Malone's Arena Concert. Let's see what it says here. Post Malone has come to put on a show-stopping concert for MTG Arena, and congratulations. Everyone gets a front-row seat. 
What? Why do they capitalize congratulations? Play one of five musically inclined decks to join in on this Rockstar Jam session. This is right. Join in on this Rockstar Jam session. So you have to read ahead to say things properly. As you run circles around your opponents, you'll earn sleeves from the secret layer X Post Malone, the Lands Collection. There are five different sleeves to collect. Wow. And it also looks like there's some emotes and let's see okay yeah these lands are oh sleeves the sleeves are kind of eh and you can win lands too okay but is, are they selling stuff on the store yeah you can buy the post malone emotes yeah no no those are not very good emotes you have Karn crowd surfing and a goblin playing drums and an elf sort of headbanging. Yeah, no. No. Anyway, let's see what we got here. Post Malone. <laughs> Hope I didn't choose the worst deck. Yeah, the, the sleeves are pretty... Eh. All right, that's all you can really win is the sleeves. Yeah, whatever. <coughs> I thought you could... Because the lands are kind of cool because it's like he scribbles on them and stuff, but I'm not buying any secret layers. I don't do paper magic. Oh, you can choose the decks. All right, but anyway, Eliwick is a, a, a planeswalker from Dungeons & Dragons, and you can venture into the dungeon with her pla her power. She's a planeswa planeswalker card. I had to stop the game before, but... Yeah, this is the only format I, I play on Magic Arena is, is a historic brawl. I love it. Every game is fascinating, interesting. Uh, recently I put together a Gorian Wise Mentor deck which uh, takes advantage of the uh, adventure cards, which they released more of in uh, the Baldur's Gate expansion. It just, I mean, a lot of the stuff surrounding Magic is, is crazy, like cards that cost $100,000 each and Endless spoiler seasons, endless this, endless that. But the game itself is so good. Let me see. Alright, I'm going to mulligan this one. You get a free mulligan in Brawl. Vizier of the Menagerie, Cultivate, Crawl, Harpooner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the reason I play Historic Brawl is that, you know, there's no way I'm going to play Standard. I mean, I try not to put too, too much money into this. And unlike Paper Magic, where you could fear it's theoretically you could make money back by selling your cards back to someone else, th these are not NFTs or crypto or anything. You're buying this car these cards, and when uh, they decide to shut this game down, you'll lose all of your digital stuff. So you better hope to make your uh, get your money's worth of fun from the money you're spending on the game, which I think I do. You know. But there's a Post Malone avatar here. I don't know if you can get the avatar, though. All right, I'm going to play the Insect Warrior Crawl Harpooner. This has Undergrowth. It checks the number of creature cards in your graveyard. Okay. It's kind of cool when they release the Dungeons & Dragons set. Ellie, Ellie Wick uh, gets plus one for venturing into the dungeon. All right, I'll cultivate... Get two basic land cards. 
<coughs> like, the only reason I can really play Historic Brawl is that I've been playing this game for a long time and I have a ton of cards, you know? And uh, if you were just starting off, you would probably have to play Standard. And uh, I guess you could play Standard Brawl. I mean, if you wanted to put thousands of dollars in it to buy cards, I don't know, but it gets a little crazy after a while. Yeah, I don't know about that avatar. I don't really like that avatar. All right, now I can play my Eliwick. And I should be able to s protect her with the Harpooner. We venture into the dungeon. So the dungeon of the Mad Mage, Waterdeep, Lost Mine of Fandelver, or Tomb of Annihilation. I think Fandelver is like the safest one. Apparently, in in paper, um, Scry, uh, Beast Whisper looks pretty good. Um, in paper, apparently they did another. All right, I'm not going to attack to protect my Eliwick. They did another um, a, another dungeon in in paper Baldur's Gate. So. Anyway, what's going on here? More stuff going on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Looks like my wife just got home. Let me see. All right, I guess I'll I'll concede and I'll come back. I'll play. I'll try to play again. I'm not having much luck playing a complete game of uh, Post Malone Magic. Hey, I'm in the basement. It's late at night. Well, not that late. What is it? Ten thirty-eight p.m. I played a few a few games of those post Malone decks. It was okay. Nothing to write home about. Yeah, apparently, the Eliwick deck is the, is the big deck. That's what that's the one everyone's using, and winning with. The Boros deck I tried. It got my ass handed to me. I said that one sucks. It's a red white. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Boros, red white, Ravnica. No, no. Listen, I I'm I am not as into magic as so many people are, but it's it's a good thing for nerds. There's a lot of information to process. Anyway, um, after that, I, I sat down on my computer. And uh, I figured I would check on the, the old, uh, what is it, uh, the old uh, place for videos, and see if uh, uh, Clerks Three was on there because I, I I saw it was out, but it's not really like, I don't know, it's on like a streaming service, but when you have to pay for, or, I don't know. So I started watching Clerks Three by Kevin Smith. I'm about halfway through it. Yeah, I mean, to me, so far, who knows? Maybe the second half is better, but the first half so far is is like bad. In in an, it's a new kind of bad. It's it's wild because it's like I, don't, I can't even describe it. I mean, it was already bad before the celebrity cameo scene, but it's a lot of like self reference. So I guess the whole idea is that like. Randall has a heart attack and then he decides he wants to uh, make a movie about his life but it's basically just Clerks the first movie that he's going to make and then there's all these self self-reference things it's a bit tiresome and then 
they have auditions for the actors and it's obviously all of Kevin Smith's celebrity friends just like hamming it up in in a way that's uh you know very cringy and I know it's meant to be cringy but it's um <coughs> it's just it just doesn't work like the whole tone of the whole thing feels like something that would have been old hat 20 years ago 10 years ago yeah and then I, I looked it up I was annoyed the main guys that played Dante and Randall and Jay and Silent Bob they're all younger than me I can't believe that they look so old on the movie screen they're, they're, they're all younger than me they're all like born in 1970 or something I'm 67 and the whole movie oh I'm so old I'm so old we're middle aged men now we're old what the fuck these people are younger than me. It's annoying. Ugh. But I was definitely a fan of, uh, you know, the story of Clerks. I remember hearing about it before the movie even came out. My grandmother, Betty Nora in New Brunswick, she, uh, she, she had a newspaper clipping about this guy who maxed out his credit cards and got like $20,000 to make a movie. And yet somehow it all worked out and it became very popular. And I actually went down to the quick stop before the movie came out, down in Leonardo, to visit it. And I was very inspired by the story. You know, a guy from New Jersey that, you know, was sort of traveled in some of the same circles I did. Uh, well, not circles, but places, you know, like the malls and stuff. Anyway, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, a success story. It's kind of inspiring. And then the second movie, Mallrats, I thought was great. It, uh, he mentioned Menlo, and they actually showed the US-1 flea market that I worked at the comic book store at in, in 1985 or six. I think it was 85. You know, they called the Dirt Mall. And I don't know. I don't know if his movies really... After that, they, it was kind of downhill for Kevin Smith. Um... But I figured I would see it just, you know, just for old time's sake. And I don't know. I guess I'll keep watching it. It's not it's not that long. It's only an hour and 40 minutes long. So I guess 50 minutes is the halfway part. Yeah. Anyway. What do you want? What is this? Fourth quarter live? Oh, yeah. They have uh, Thursday Night Football on Amazon Prime watch let's see the Saints versus the Cardinals Lonnie Anderson what okay enough of that <laughs> no thank you no thank you isn't there a baseball game on now too let's see how can I get the baseball game? YouTube TV? We're watching some sports here. See, ever since the uh, Central episode with sports, I've been watching sports. Okay, let's see. How does this work? YouTube TV. Where is the baseball? Sometimes it's hard for to search for things on here. Houston Astros. 
No. Yeah, Houston Astros versus the New York Yankees. Live. Oh, Houston is leading 3-2. Great. I really don't care about this game. They can do whatever they want. Get out of here. But I would say that uh, the Kevin Smith thing, where he's like Jay and Silent Bob, you know, he's Silent Bob and the other guy is Jay. It's a bit different than the thing I've been talking about, about the, the, the sort of 80s movie archetypes that I was sort of like me and Mad Mike were trying to be like these characters from movies when we were in college and uh, we're sort of like legends in our own minds you know I guess I guess the Jay and Silent Bob thing is kind of like that in a way but not exactly because I mean there's a certain characteristic to that 80s cool guy kind of uh, trope but it's all about kind of imagining yourself as something that you're not and just sort of like like sort of obviously there's something very sad about you know this delusional way of life but there's something about it if it's done right it actually kind of works you know because there's a certain um like idiot joy to it to it all you know I don't know. It's all a continuum, man. It's a continuum. Continuum of delusions. <coughs> I still haven't had any cold medicine since uh, this morning. Gee, don't I sound great? So now I have to decide if I'm going to take NyQuil tonight. You know, if I don't need it, I don't think I should have NyQuil, even though I have been having some cool dreams. On the NyQuil. Um, yeah, if I don't need it, I don't think I should take it. It, it. it seems like a, you know, one of these one of these things. You can only enjoy NyQuil when you're really sick. You know what I mean? And there's all these warnings on it now. Even NyQuil is like, and even the uh, Alka Seltzer parents be, get informed. Your kids are taking Alka Seltzer Plus to get high. You know, like. I guess I guess it, I guess that dextromethorphan is the thing. If you take mass doses of it, it like freaks you the hell out. I guess I never did that. So, but uh, yeah, apparently it's a big problem. So, yeah. But when you're sick, you're allowed to take it because it's considered normal. If you're sick, you take medicine. Indeed. I'm definitely in a weird mood. It must be. It must be a dextromethorphan withdrawals or something. What the hell's wrong with me? All right, I better. I better mosey back upstairs and continue watching Clerks Three, as depressing as it is. Kitties, what are you doing? Oh, good morning. It's the next morning now. I did not take Nyquil, but I did ha- take the uh, Alka-Seltzer Plus nighttime version which adds uh, the antihistamine, which makes you tired. Anyway, this morning's dream was uh, it was about this telephone system, this new telephone system that was being set up. And this guy named Jay Ivey, who obviously was based on Joni Ive, 
for the, the, the Apple designer guy. Jay Ivy. Interestingly, another guy named Jay. I right the other day I dreamt about two people I knew named Jay. J A Y. So the whole idea was like in this new phone system, he wanted his phone number to be you would just uh, you would just type in J A Y and you could call him, right? Because he because he kind of was the designer of the whole system, so he wanted his people just to be able to type in J and call him. Um, so it was sort of a detail about how uh, the system was designed, and there was this huge building, and it was sort of like you know like the phone company building, and they J Ivy was there. And they're going to test out the new phone system. And then there also was um, this crew of like zombies or something that worked with him. And they wanted their own phone number as well, like 1-800-ZOMBIES or something. I don't know what the heck it was. Uh, <coughs> they were trying to, <coughs> and they're trying to uh, test that phone number out too. Weird. And then, and, and um, before that, there was a whole dream with uh, this huge department store. And uh, I was there with a group of people from work. But the people I used to work with at that financial marketing agency. And it was a whole issue of like trying to, like we were trying to go to the sixth floor. I forget what was there. Some sort of something was on sale maybe some toys or games or something and I remembered I used to how I used to go up to the sixth floor there were all these different areas you could go to get an elevator but in this case it was like uh, there was all these like weird noises right and uh, the doors would open but like the elevator Right, you could sort of see was like swinging back and forth. It was like a pendulum, right? The doors were closed. The doors opened, and you saw the elevator swinging back and forth. It was like very frightening. And then finally, there were like two people, or or even like gargoyle type creatures or something that sort of stopped it, stopped the elevator, and um, like in the in in the and they sort of turned their heads over to the people waiting and in order to like stop the elevator they 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 clamped down on it and like crushed the edges of the elevator so they they shook their heads they're like no this elevator's not going to be working anytime soon so then i went to some other area of the department store and uh trying to find another another elevator up but i think that yeah <coughs> like this elevator it's a classic bad elevator dream, right? So this elevator, um, uh, I finally got onto one, and it went down. Then then it started going horizontally, and you could look up and you could see that you were like sort of under the ground. And I'm, I'm and I was thinking, oh yeah, because yeah, because I was in the north wing, so this has to take you to the south wing. So the elevator is going horizontally now. I've had that before in dreams, where where the elevator just sort of goes starts going horizontally and through these tunnels and corridors and stuff. Weird. Bad elevator dreams. 
That is part of the traditional dream system where the elevators never seem to work right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just remember sort of this huge atrium in the department store. I was crossing it to get to one of the other elevator areas. But I don't recall much else than J. Ivy and his crew of zombies and the gargoyle elevator maintenance guys and bad elevators. All right, so I finished uh, the last 25 minutes of uh, Clerks 3 this morning. It was uh, pretty bad throughout. Though I guess in the end, it, it really did... Uh, there was a, you know, a sentimental moment. It really felt very much like sort of out of place, considering the first Clerks, but... Um, Anyway, I mean, it was like a, it was like a uh, an interesting bookend to uh, that world of what was that around nineteen ninety or so. Yeah, it brought to mind for me the uh, store cultures that I was a part of in the past, from uh, Quality Comics in Somerville, New Jersey, and Video Game Connections in Howell, New Jersey, hanging out, having pop culture conversations with fellow Gen Xers. Really quite a wonderful aspect of reality. It does bring to mind the idea that cosmic entities could build whole universes just so that stores in New Jersey in the 90s could exist and Generation Xers hang out, talk about pop culture. And I do understand, I do think that um, the value I see in such things, my own experiences, and obviously Kevin Smith's, um, you know, reflect a larger sort of human connection between people and having topics of conversation, even if those topics are characters, the movies created by these mega corporations, perhaps with the express purpose of obsessing and occupying the minds of the people so they don't worry about other things, other aspects of their lives. Still just having that point of connection is very important. I did have that moment of realization at the New York Comic Con number of years back all these adults now not just limited to a small portion of the population of the nerds the nerdy geeky crowd the the geeky set um, but now more general society obsessed with cartoon characters and superheroes seemed kind of like an apocalypse in a way, an apocalyptic degradation of human activity. <laughs> hey, it was good for me, but I don't want everyone to be doing this. This is not healthy for society. But yeah, as a movie, Clerks 3 is not good. It's not good. I mean, it feels so much like a vanity project, which I guess it really was. 
it really but I think the only real saving grace it has is an ode to self-obsession an ode to narcissism on the part of Kevin Smith it's just so self-centered around him and his movie universe and it also sort of touches on a topic that I've uh, been fascinated by which is which is how when you're a certain age, when you're young, when you're around in your early 20s, late teens, early 20s, you can create at a level that you will you will quickly lose that level of creativity. You're in touch with the muse in a way that um, that is just this fleeting thing. And a lot of musicians, for example, are, you know, they wrote their best music when they were in their early 20s and they spend the rest of their career having to play the music almost as a cover band to the music written by their younger selves, right? And, uh, you know, Kevin Smith, I would say, Clerks was a was a project that um, he was in touch with that muse and created something great. And uh, it's been kind of all downhill since then, I think, for his creative productions... And this movie is sort of a rumination on that, in a way, how we spend most of our lives being older and kind of um, feeling, having this weird relationship with that younger version of us. And that strange quirk of human activity, that burst of creativity in the early 20s. And they do say, in terms of brain science, that... um, the brain keeps developing and changing until around age 25, which would correlate with that. There's no proof of that, but it would correlate with that that timing that um, you sort of still have aspects of the child mind, but with an adult sensibility. I mean, any kind of art, you're going to need some kind of life experience to channel into your art. So when you're a child, you have this incredible creativity but you really have nothing to say because you're a child you haven't had much life experience so maybe that's it you know as you're getting through the teen years which of course are very dramatic right and you have more you've gained some perspective you still have that type of brain until you hit around 25 right you have more and more to say and you still and but the creative brilliance of the child is waning as your life experience is increasing. So there's these two, one graph, creative ability of the brain is going down, life experience, things to say is going up, and they cross over at this one point, and that's where you're able to create the best stuff. I know this is a huge overgeneralization, but in in general, there is that moment where you're able to do that stuff, and... um, and it fades, you know. And then, you know, so I, I, I think it's it also is sadly kind of talking about that and, and a lament about, you know, having to deal with the aftermath of a brief fling with the muse and then the long descent into utter mediocrity.
Wow, it's pretty dark stuff. Where's my coffee? I need my coffee. I want me coffee. Hey, Kitty, you want the window? Kitty, you know, as it's getting colder, we can't have the window open too long. Come here. I know, you want to open the window. Come on, come on, Vic. I know, come on, we're opening it. Here you go. Yeah, yeah. Good coffee. <coughs> now, of course, in my situation, you see, you knew I was going to bring it back to me. I'm just as self-obsessed as the next creative person from New Jersey. Come on. I did have that burst. I didn't really create anything uh, of great value, but I did all of my comic strips with Zope. I did, uh, you know, that early proto-podcast before podcasting Train Crap and Blood, and my writing, my, that's why my f- science fiction novel failed. I did all, most of the writing back in that certain time period. And especially my whole Obliviana Super Occult Amusement thing. I just burst all over the place, and it, uh, it was a big mess. But I found this format of, thankfully, found, discovered Gene Shepard and his uh, monologue style. And uh, I think this is a, a medium that actually you get better with age doing doing a, a medium like this and it's uh not so much of a of a struggle and you can continue on and I do feel like I've produced my best work later in life rather than in that early 20s time period I continue to produce the best work perhaps not this episode but other episodes I'm producing my best work at this time period when I'm old even older than all the guys in clerks and I would say I went, I, I went to that clerk's place I don't know probably late 90s early 2000s and I had the worst cup of coffee I ever had from Quick Stop it was amazing it really was just despicable the coffee and it's hard you can't really get bad coffee anymore I've talked about that I used to go to these like Krausers or or Quick Check and before the coffee revolution of the 1990s, they would make a pot of coffee and leave it sitting there, just sort of, just sort of seething all day long. If no one got it, and you, I mean, it would be the most disgusting swill you could imagine. You went to a McDonald's and you would dare to get coffee; it would be disgusting, just awful. And there was a certain romance to that, like you needed coffee, but you. Ugh, got to go to one of these places and drink this horrific coffee. And, you know, I know most people don't drink it black with no sugar, but that's how I've always drank coffee. So you really taste the coffee. Back then, people would throw all this uh, cream and sugar in there and mitigate the foul taste, you know. But I always got the full blast of the awfulness. And then... With the rise of, you know, Starbucks, all of these coffee places started upping their game. 
And all the coffee now is pretty decent. And uh, you can't get that bad coffee anymore. I'm sure if you really looked around, you could, but... I know I've talked about this before, but, you know, I just... Could you could you make a... Could you create a, a you know... Uh, create create a new business that deliberately creates bad coffee, right? And because you know, all when you buy coffee, it's like a hundred made with a hundred percent arabica beans, for God's sakes. And apparently, the alternative is robusto beans, right? So apparently, in the past, a lot of coffee was like, eh, you know, we'll put thirty percent arabica. The rest will be this crap robusto. Whatever is these Robusto. Who's growing these bad beans? If you can grow coffee, why would you grow the shit Robusto rather than the delicious Arabica? Anyway, our coffee would be 100% Robusto beans. Bad coffee. It would just be completely horrible and undrinkable. You know, it'd be like return to the 80s and before the age of bad coffee be a good idea I don't know I would go there at least once and I would be like god this is horrible like when I uh, when they when they brought back Crystal Pepsi I'm like oh my god I love Crystal Pepsi when I tried it I'm like oh god it's horrible so you know I'm always trying to I'm always working on the uh, the show art for the Overnight Escape here and the show titles and things, and uh, it's always an exploration. I really don't ever have a particular clear vision of what it, it's going to be. I mean, sometimes, of course, if it, there's a show with a very overwhelming topic like going to Chattanooga, I know that the show title and image are going to be about that, but a lot of shows are just sort of, there's no real focus like that. So I uh, I wind up doing, uh, you know, just sort of explorations. And I guess it was... Uh, a few days ago, I found this file called Old Soap X, and um, it's just an image of a barrel with some purple and orange lines over it, <coughs> but I figured, why not try and turn on all the layers in this Photoshop file and see what happens, and there's a lot going on here, because this is, uh, there was an episode I did called Old Soap, what was it called again? Let me see. Old Soap sort of construction-related dust. And this was back on uh, December 15th, 2020, right? Because I did have these old um, soft soaps. Um, I don't know about soft soaps. Liquid soap, you know. When you wash your hands at a sink, you used to have a bar of soap, but now everyone uses the liquid soap. And so we had some, but it was just had this grime on it, like this, like like I guess construction related dust. So that show art wound up being rather different, right? I took it in a different direction. It was an orange background with a real old Overnightscape logo on the upper left, with the green and white and black, and then old soap sort of construction related dust typeset in that. Um, was it the masquerade font? Is that masquerade? It might be. Anyway. So this file I found, which was from, let me see the exact date here, December 23rd, 2020. December 23rd. Yeah, yeah. 
so maybe I kept working on it afterwards. Yeah, I think I was trying to like reuse it for something. So I figured I would just uh, you know turn on all of the the layers and see what that produced. Oh wait, it was actually old soap three. Was it a three? I'm trying to get my the steps I took to get to this point. Old soap three, yeah. Just turn on all the layers. See, that's not working either. That's weird. Maybe it was old soap two. Wait a minute. This is getting weird because I, I I'm I can't find the sequence of events that got me to this show art, but I just turned on all the layers, which usually would result in just a mess. But in this case, it produced something wonderful. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I can't reproduce it. But I have it. I mean, I have... All right, hold on. The original Old Soap X. All right, let me turn on all the layers. Yes, 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 yes. This will work. This will work. Yes. And produces the result that you see. Yes, exactly. Okay. So this is today's show art. It's just going to be called Old Soap. Since the other one was called Old Soap Sort of Construction Related Dust, it's not the same exact title. And it does strangely fit in, right? Old Soap. That, you know, if you thought you could sort of... The, the, the cleanliness of your creative process when you were young is now old. It's Old Soap. Bit of a stretch. But anyway... I love the way this looks because there's all these like layers of things and it was unintentional. It just looks so cool. What is that font? What's that font I use there? Let's see if I can find the name of that font. Uh, Tabasco Twin, yeah. Tabasco Twin. That's a good font. Nice. So that's today's episode. Old Soap, there's a barrel in there. The Onsug logo. Everything's going on in this. This is cool. I like this show art. Old Soap returns again. But now, as we've been talking about old soap, how about some new soap? So, within the past few months, you know, I've been going to my father's house a lot because he's been having some health issues. And um, I saw there was a really good liquid soap uh, on, on the downstairs bathroom from L'Occitane and Provence. And I assume that my sister-in-law, Johanna, brought it over to kind of improve the soap situation. Because I think a lot of times people wind up with some not-so-great soaps. Like, uh, we have here the Greener Ways hand soap. And this is awful. And I guess this was on sale. This is the soap that um, it sort of forms this crust by the... uh, the spigot, you, you know, the pump where you pump the soap out. And so it'll, like, because it forms this solid gunk, it, like, shoots all over your shirt. It'll, like, it's like the worst soap ever, okay? Even though it is vegan, um, the soap is uh, horrible. I would never get it again. It, it's depressing. It's depressing soap. I want soap that's going to make me happy, okay? So a little more high-end soap, more fancy flavors or scents, as, as you would call it, you know. So I sought out. I'm like, let me find some soap on Amazon that um, could be some new soap for us that would make me happy. And of course, I limited my search to soap that says vegan on it. Now, I know 
for those of you that are not vegan, which is most of you, all this vegan, all this chatter about veganism can, can be quite annoying. I understand that. Listen, I'm aware of that. But, you know, and I understand what does it matter if you're, if you're using like dead animal grease on your hands, at least you're not eating it. I get that. But, you know, all things considered, I'd prefer not to smear dead animal grease on my hands, which a lot of soaps, especially bar soaps, do use animal fat in them. Your Lever 2000 or Irish Spring, yada, yada, will, contains, uh, you know, sodium tallowate, which is uh, tallow, animal fat. You know, I mean, I guess if I had to use, had to really clean my hands and that, that was the only soap available, I suppose I would have to use it, but I would prefer not to if I have a choice. And this is the main point, you know, as has been established. And as I think there was an article about Magic the Gathering, once again, how um, a certain amount of choice improves the experience of whatever you're doing, but then too much choice kind of ruins the experience, right? Uh, so there's this sweet spot of just the right amount of choice. So when it comes to a, a product like soap, um, the, the idea that I can limit my search just to soaps that say vegan on them, they didn't use any, any dead animal products in making them, um, limits the amount of choice I have, but which that's actually good. It's actually good to have a smaller range to choose from, just, a, in, just in the realm of human experience. So that's sort of a weird fringe benefit of being vegan is to uh, have that less, lesser choice. There's still a pool of products to choose from, but you know, you don't, you're not overwhelmed with choice. Because still, especially most of the big companies refuse to uh, you know, label anything vegan, and I understand that because a big company may not even really know all the ingredients that are in their product. It might be a certain type of ingredient that could be sourced from animal or non-animal sources. Maybe they don't know. And the bigger your company, the more you are a target for lawsuits, you know, from, from vegans perhaps, if, if, if your product isn't really, 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 really vegan. So I understand their reluctance to put vegan on it. Smaller companies can afford to because, you know, I guess if they get sued, they don't really have much to lose. I don't know. Anyway, so this is what I found. I haven't used it yet, but I'm going to try it for today for the first time. This is, uh, what is this? Let's, let's go analyze this. Then I will, then I will use the soap and, and uh, we'll, we'll figure out like the actual product of it, the nature of it. This is, uh, it's a good looking bottle. See, that's the main thing. It has to be kind of a good looking bottle. It's sort of a, Black bottle has the usual pump. Bayless and Harding goodness. So this label, it's like black and then a a light a light sort of grayish blue. It almost says maybe dark dark instead of black maybe it's dark blue. I'm not sure. And then there's a sort of a copper gold um, stamp on there. You know, Bayless and Harding goodness, beautifully clean. Natural hand wash, Sauvon Natural pour le monde. Oud, cedar, and amber, okay? With organic extracts of oregano and lemon. It's vegan, 98% natural, okay? Jeez, what the hell? 2% is unnatural, okay? What is it, ectoplasm? What the hell? Dermatologist approved. Hmm. 
Like one, you found one dermatologist. You walked into his office. Hey, doc, how do you like our soap? Do you approve of it? Uh, sure. It's soap. It's thanks. We're gonna put the label on our on the front of our product. One hundred percent recycled bottle. Let's see. Oh, it's made in the UK. Wow. All good, all goodness. We are a family company located in the heart of England. We have lovingly created these beautiful vegan-friendly products that will awaken your senses and make you feel good too. The inspiration for this collection comes from nature. Well, at least 98% of it. We have carefully blended our plant-based formulas using only the finest natural ingredients and organic extracts. Each year, we nominate a charity close to our hearts and minds, so thank you. By choosing us, we get to do a good deed, too. Generous, generosity bottled. I, I think that could have used like a, like a bit of revision, that entire copy there. But it's all right. It's fine. This bottle is made from 100% recycled material, PCR, contains natural oils, mild plant-based cleansers, made in the UK, 95% biodegradable. <laughs> what? What, what? Wait, what's the point of that? 95% biodegradable formula. So 5%, like if you put it, if you put it in the dirt, 5% of it would just what? Congeal? <laughs> what the hell? Um, hand wash, lather and rinse. That's your instructions. Warning, if product gets in the eyes, rinse immediately with clean, warm water. If skin irritation occurs, discontinue use. Let's see the ingredients here. Aqua, which is water. Coca midopropyl betaine. Sodium loroyal methyl isethionate. This is all natural? <laughs> Wait a second. Parfum, fragrance, glycerin, guar, hydroxypropyl litrimonium chloride. <laughs> Sounds very natural to me. Citric acid, PEG-120, methyl glucose tiolate. <laughs> Allentoin. What the hell's Allentoin? That sounds like a mispronunciation of Allentown. Panthenol, citrus, le limon, lemon fruit extract, organum vulgare. What? Vulgar organism, oregano extract, sodium benzoate, potassium sorbate, and limonene. <laughs> Jeez, man. That does not sound awfully natural, but apparently it is 98% natural. Anyway, so the oud, cedar, and amber, right? Now, we all know cedar. It's a kind of a tree. So what are they? Chop? They're chopping down the, all the cedar forests to make this soap. Great. Uh, amber. Now, what is when they talk about amber as a scent, right? You, you know that's like fossilized tree resin that little like bugs get trapped in and they cost a lot of money. They're like, they're like fossils, right? <laughs> But what is amber when they talk about it as a uh, as an ingredient? Like, are they actually taking that precious fossilized material? 
right, amber. Uh, amber scent. See, I never really quite figured this out. The amber scent. Like, what? What is it? Amber scent. Where? What is amber, and where does it come from? When it comes to primal instincts, this is at experimentalperfumeclub.com. <laughs> Sounds like a good club to join. If only I was a joiner, I would join that club. I don't join any clubs, though. I'm not really a joiner. When it comes to primal instinct, the smell of amber triggers something comforting in all of us. Would you like to wear a fragrance that contains tiger's soul or tears of the sun? It's a yes from us. Contrary to popular belief, amber is a fantasy perfumery note. Amber is a blend of ingredients that describes a warm, powdery, sweet scent. It consists of a soiree of ingredients, natural and synthetic, such as vanilla, patchouli, labdanum, styrax, benzoine, and a few more. It is used to create oriental fragrances that convey a rich, spicy, and powdery feel. It's not real. It's not real at all. What does it say here? Natural by nature. True natural amber takes millions of years to form. That's a long time. It's not sap from any old tree, but rather soft and sticky fossilized tree resin. You know the stuff that you see insects kept in. It has a stunning fiery yellow, red, or orange color that draws you in. In the most mesmerizing way. The resin has very little scent unless burned when it then gives off a pine-like aroma. Okay, so if it's fossilized, wouldn't it have been completely replaced by, uh, no, okay. So it seems to be, wait, isn't fossilization the, the replacement of the organic material with minerals? I don't, I don't, this, whatever. The term amber comes from the Arabic ambar, or French ambra, ambra related to ambergris, a waxy substance found in the intestines of the sperm whale. We no longer use ambergris in perfumery for obvious reasons, but it has inspired a very special synthetic ingredient, ambroxin, which we'll talk about a bit later. No, we won't. I think we're done with this, this segment, but yes, it is, a, it is not a real scent. trying to even see oh, oh the fragrance the, the parfum the fragrance that's where all of the smell is in here so then what about oud o-u-d because i remember i went to uh there was like a a shop a perfume shop in, from the middle east in uh times square and they had oud o-u-d right oud what is oud and why is it so expensive? Here's another one. Let's see. This is from a website called alphaaromatics.com. Known as the $5,000 per pound scent, oud, or oud with an H at the end, is by far one of the most expensive raw fragrance ingredients in the world. Also known as agar wood, this essential oil is extracted from the fungus-infected resinous heartwood of the agar tree, which is primarily found in the dense forests 
of Southeast Asia, India, and Bangladesh. It is either extracted by distillation from the wood or by melting the resin. It is believed that for every 10 trees in the wild, only one will have an infected heartwood. Expert perfumers seek out those, these older trees because of the superior richness of the resin's aroma. Unfortunately, many of these older trees are now considered threatened species. Due to the fact that the resin is only triggered by the formation of the mold, it's estimated that a total of 2% of these trees produce it. This contributes to its status as the most expensive commodity on the essential oil market. The Value of Oud Essential Oil The annual Oud market gleans around $6 billion, and its value is often estimated as one and a half times the value of gold. For these reasons, it is sometimes referred to as liquid gold. Forbes has reported it can cost $5,000 per pound. Have you noticed like Forbes has become like this clickbait company now? There's all of these like crappy articles that are on Forbes. Anyway, I think we have enough, uh, enough information. This goes on and on. You can do your own oud research if you prefer. But anyway, let's see how this, uh, how this is. Let's just try this out. I'm really hoping that this is a, a good hand soap that you have to make sure that the, the spigot is facing the right direction so that I, you can see the label while you're washing your hands. Right? It seems like a little bit out of alignment or something. What's going on here? How does it work? These pump, the pumps are always a little funny. Oh, here we go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I mean? I want to be able to see the label because that's part of the, the process of washing your hands. You're like, look, that's a good label. That's not a shitty label like that greener ways crap. Let's go over there and do it. Bayless and Harding. Are those actual real names or is this sort of like Bartles and James wine coolers, these fictional people? Bayless and Harding. Okay, let's move this out of the way, the crappy one, and let's try this out with some oud. I wonder actually how much oud could possibly be in here considering it's like $5,000. Jeez, man. This didn't cost that much. Hold on, let me, let me, it takes a little while for the water to get hot in this sink. Oh, there, there you go, all right. So, so imagine I'm washing my hands. No, I really am actually washing my hands. All right, here we go. Ooh, it's kind of gooey. Ooh, it smells good though. It has kind of a good smell. Kind of an oozy, gooey uh, kind of soap. Lather's okay. Ooh, but you can smell that. Yeah. Spicy, exotic. Oud and amber and cedar. And also oregano and lemon. I like it. I, I dig it. I'm sold. I want good soap. This is new soap, not old soap. Out with the old, in with the newer. And I'm gonna. There's a little bit of this greener ways garbage. I'm gonna put this underneath the sink for emergency use only. Emergency soap usage. Mm, I do like that. That is actually a good soap. I forget how much it was, but I want good soaps at my sinks. I want oud because it costs five thousand dollars. Obviously not per bottle, but you know per whatever they said per pound or something. I for, I already forget what it said in the article. So anyway. Let's see what else they have. What, is, what else does Bayless and Harding have? 
Bayless and Harding. Sustainable luxury. Ooh. How about the Royale Garden? Limited edition. Wait. Limited edition verbena and chamomile. Yeah, that doesn't really... Elements of white, neroli, white tea and neroli. Yeah. Oud cedar and amber. That's a good one. They even have a body wash of that one. And for kids, watermelon burst, lavender and vanilla, or strawberry swirl. Gee, they're covering all bases here. <laughs> wow. So, so what other flavors do they have here? Lemongrass ginger, rose geranium, sea, sea kelp and peppermint. I, I could kind of dig that, I guess. But sea, No, no. I'm going to stick with the oud, cedar, and amber one, yeah. That's the, only, that's the only one I really dig of all these flavors. Sea kelp and peppermint. It feels like you're trying too hard. Sea kelp and peppermint. Why not, why not a different, why not like spearmint? With, why don't you pair like spearmint with kelp? You know what I mean? Why is it always peppermint? I don't know. So I checked the, uh, the new music because it's Friday. New music available on Apple Music streaming service and this is uh by jean-michel jarre it's uh oxymore a new album it's interesting sounds good love electronic music and i mean i've listened to jarre's music in the past and i've i guess oxygen is the series never been a huge fan of his but this sounds pretty good let's see what this is all about oxymore is the first recording project of this scale entirely conceived and composed in multi-channel and binaural audio. This album is also a tribute to the roots of French electronic music and an homage to the late French composer Pierre Henry. Wow. Read the press release. This project launches a groundbreaking new VR universe known as Oxyville. What? A, met a new metaverse? Live performances in spatial audio at P Palais Rongiar, Par Paris, on October 23rd, 24th, and 25th. And via live stream VR and 2D, also available in replay for one week. It's very, uh, very uh, ambitious. Sound on Sound says, Oxymore demonstrates that immersive audio isn't just an extension of stereo. It's a genuinely new medium with infinite creative potential. Rolling Stone says, A controlled, raw, and festive bacchanal of sound. Technicart says, A revolution in sound. Prague Magazine says, Ever the innovator, Jean-Michel Jarre's desire... And yes, I, I researched how to pronounce his name before I started speaking it. Jean-Michel Jarre's... Sorry. Ever the innovator, Jean-Michel Jarre's desire to shape the future leaves little room for nostalgia. Electronic music pioneer Jean-Michel Jarre releases Oxymore. His 22nd studio album is conceptually his most ambitious and groundbreaking to date. Oxymore is the first commercial release of this scale, which fully utilizes multi-channel and binaural audio, spatial 3D with Jar not just producing, but also composing and recording and mixed in Audio 360 in the Innovation Studios of Radio France. He explains, 
In real life, stereo does not exist. Our audio field is 360 degrees. Today, technology allows us to explore composition in spatial audio. And that opens a whole new experience for us musicians in the creative process. Music will be more easily experienced by anyone with regular headphones or with new generations of sound systems offering a more physical and natural way of listening to sound and music in full immersion. I like this. It's, it's ambitious. It's a step forward. Let's push things forward, as the streets said. Oxymore is a tribute to the French roots of electronic music, which has had a major influence on the music production of the genre over the years. Oxymore is also an homage to late French composer Pierre Henry. At the origin of music concrete with Pierre Schaeffer, with whom Jar has been intending on collaborating for Jar's Grammy-nominated project album Electronica. Henry was an iconic figure in electronic and classical music, one of Jar's influences at the group De Recherche Musicale, GRM, where he studied. Since his death in 2017, Henry's widow provided Jar with the original sounds which he had, he had been intended to use for his in collaboration. It's a very hard press release to read. It keeps going, but you get the idea. How is this music, though? I, I don't think I have. I don't think I have like 3D headphones to listen to it, though. Oh, here he is saying his own name. All right, hold on. Hello, I'm Jean-Michel Jarre. Jean-Michel Jarre. How's the music going here? Is it over? I can, I can, I can, you know, in what I've heard of music concrete, that kind of a music concrete kind of aspect here. This song is called Neon Lips. All the songs are in capital letters. Kind of like Duran Duran's latest album with everything's in capital letters. Turn this off for now. The music is a bit much for this early in the morning. Come on. Come on. What am I going to listen to? I don't know. It was all right. I, I, maybe I'll get back to it. It is very innovative, but it was a, kind of annoying me a little bit, though, at the same time. Innovation can be annoying, but it's necessary. Yeah, so, you know, Jean-Michel Jarre, you know, he's definitely not in his early 20s. But he seems to be producing innovative work, you know, much later in life. So it can happen. It can happen. Anyway, you want to talk about innovative work. Uh, I would like to give you an update on my solitaire game, Flea Devil Solitaire. As you know, I've been working on this game for over 15 years now. And uh, I thought I had finished it. I thought it was done. It was pretty good. Earlier this year, I really brought it to a level that really made it into a fantastic game. And then I, I stopped playing it for a few... I took some a few months off. And when I got back to it, um, a new rule occurred to me. The walkie-talkie rule, which really brought a lot of uh, new interesting angles to the gameplay. And uh, But I found then the game was a little too easy to win. So... Just a week or two ago, I came up with Piggy Bank, the investment scheme where, right, the game, without getting too deeply into the game itself, the game is all about shuffling a deck of cards and then removing pairs of cards, 
each removed pair form your bankroll. Each one represents $1. You can spend a dollar to swap the position of two adjacent cards in the deck. There's also the flea hop rule and etc. etc. The piggy bank concept basically says anytime you spend a dollar to move two cards closer together, you can invest a dollar. And you know, the, the spent money goes into the bottom of the deck known as the easy go, but the spent dollar can be face up. Right? So my rule was that uh, you know, with a three dollar walkie talkie move and piggy bank each of the pennies you put into the you invest into the piggy bank is worth three dollars at the end. That I've been playtesting quite extensively and just doesn't feel right. It feels like it's out of tune. It needs to be further tuned to make it into a better game. So I've been sort of struggling with that, and I have I, I tried a couple new directions. Like I, as the game is too easy to win. Um. I tried. I started doing double zonkers, but you know I don't really think double zonkers is the answer. Because if right, you can play with the jokers are called zonkers in Flea Devil, and they normally just they're inert cards, so they just take up space and make things further apart, making the game harder to win. I mean, I've toyed with the, the concept of double zonkers in the past, but I don't know. I think double zonkers is kind of a drag. So. <coughs> Just yesterday and today, I've theorized a new rule, which is that uh, the only score is going to be the pennies in the piggy bank, right? And the only score if you win, right? So that could be additionally, there could be an additional rule that says your score is the amount of pennies in the piggy bank above a certain amount, like four or six or ten, making the game a lot harder uh, to win. So that penny threshold uh, could be a real point of tuning. And, you know, the game is getting a little bit more complicated, so I don't know if I would... I wouldn't want to make the simple version and the hard version, because one of the hallmarks of Flea Devil has been that it is ra- rather simple, Um and I think that the introduction of um, the flea hop really makes it very pleasurable to play. And I want to really, I don't want to get away from that, just the pure joy of playing it. Um, but also, I think walkie-talkie is a very pleasurable aspect of the gameplay. That's where you're looking for a run of three cards, forwards or backwards, right? And, and allowing for king ace too, because why not? Listen, I'm making up the rules King Ace Two is okay, <laughs> but then also I realized that if, uh, yeah, Ace being that if I didn't have King Ace Two, Ace would be cards that can't be part of a run, which also would be an interesting limitation. But anyway, um, all right, so the jury's out on that one. I'll have to figure out about the uh, walkie-talkies with Aces uh, rule. But anyway. Um, I found that the, the the piggy bank aspect has been really, you really sort of have to feel like, is it, like the whole point is that the piggy, ba- investing, adding a penny to the piggy bank is depleting your bankroll and your ability to move in the game. So you have to sort of 
kind of get a good sense of like, do you have enough of a bankroll to throw a penny in the piggy bank, right? And I have over-invested a number of times in the games where you feel confident early on, you have a big bankroll, so you start to go crazy with uh, the investments into the piggy bank, and uh, and then you then you wind up blowing the whole thing, right? So if the scoring is just of the pennies, not of the bankroll, that's very interesting because, right, you're you're constantly and you can only invest at the same time you're paying to swap the position of two cards or paying for a walkie-talkie fee so right you have to choose at every point if it's if if you can afford to invest or not um, because if if you don't wind up clearing the market you'll score zero and you'll you'll get a loss so I'm I'm hopeful that this is an aspect of tuning without having to go to the double zonker route because I really, you know, I don't really like double zonkers anyway because it's kind of a drag to play with double zonkers trying to figure it out and everything because the zonkers really are almost kind of invisible but they do make the game harder to win. Um, so I'm going to go with, with that angle and see because uh, I think that that has sort of been the uh, the end game after you win the game has been kind of one aspect of it where you're just counting your winnings and then oh just write it down if you won or not and the you know sort of the in the terms of a meta game you can play a series of of rounds you know three strikes you're out if you lose three times and how much can you score but with the piggy bank rule now. I can forget about the whole oh each one it counts as three. If that if if the pennies are the only scoring mechanism, that opens up a whole new horizon in Flea Devil Solitaire. So I'm gonna work on that and uh I'm very hopeful that we'll eventually get the game where it needs to be. Anyway, talking about Gene Shepherd, uh my wife mentioned this to me last night. I was not aware of this. But apparently there's a sequel to A Christmas Story coming out. Um, of course, A Christmas Story is uh, a movie that made by, you know, put together by Gene Shepard based on his stories, stories he would tell on his show, and is certainly by far the greatest, the most popular work that Gene Shepard has left behind, though I do feel his show on WOR has vastly more important historically than the movie. And the great popularity of the movie has actually kind of turned me off to it. I really can't imagine sitting and watching it anymore. It's become overly familiar. Here we go. It's from a couple days ago. A Christmas Story sequel gets first teaser trailer with glimpse of adult Ralphie. Move over, Hocus Pocus 2. The teaser trailer for HBO Max's upcoming sequel to the 1983 classic A Christmas Story has been released, giving fans a partial glimpse of an adult Ralphie. Peter Billingsley, who played protagonist Ralphie, returns to the iconic role in the new film called A Christmas Story Christmas. The 30-second preview offers other nods to the original Christmas Christmas comedy, including familiar sets and iconic lines, such as the fragile leg lamp scene. It ends with a quick shot of Ralphie putting on glasses and smiling. 
The original film, Ralphie is a kid growing up in the 1940s with only one Christmas wish, to get a Red Ryder BB rifle. Every year, TNT and TBS air 24-hour marathons of the iconic movie on Christmas Eve. A Christmas Story Christmas takes place in the 1970s when Ralphie takes his own family to his childhood home in an attempt to resurrect the magical Christmas he had as a child. Mojo, what's going on? Other actors reprising their roles from the original Christmas film include Zach Ward, playing the former town bully Scott Farkas, who is now a police officer, as well as R.D. Robb and Scott Schwartz as the double dog darer and the recipient of the dare who fatefully put his tongue on the frozen pole, the outlet reported. Ian Petrella, who played Randy Parker, the youngest member of the Parker household, is also returning. Wow. It is coming out uh, November 17th, 2022. See if we can find this preview. Wow, all these actors getting to getting some work from this this sequel. I hope I hope they do something to honor Gene Shepard. I mean, on November 17th, the wait is finally over. Ralphie returns. Christmas Story Christmas. Exclusively on HBO Max, November 17th. Join the fun. The Triple Dog Dare You. It feels depressingly similar to Clerks 3. Looking backwards at greatness with mediocrity. Yes. But that could describe a lot of a lot of uh, works these days in the, in our prequel mad world of TV and movies. I guess really movies are kind of over with now, right? Because if you look at Star Wars, they stopped making Star Wars movies, but they're making a lot of Star Wars TV shows, which are like movies, but they're like eight or ten hours long. You know what I mean? So, like Andor is, I think, an incredible show. If it was a movie, it would just have been like two and a half hours long or so. But now it's this. I think they're going to be twelve or fourteen episodes of Andor. So it's like a you know twelve-hour movie or something, or a whole trilogy of movies in one. It's all audiovisual material that you're going to wind up watching at home anyway. So, who cares about actual movies anymore? I know there's been a lot of talk about the end of the move, the movie as a, a you know the movie theaters and stuff, but yeah, whatever. And or, in fact, is is touching on my dream for a Star Wars TV show, which is uh, think about a show like, you know, The Sopranos or Game of Thrones, right? A long, super premium TV show uh, that is, you know, really cool, interesting characters, great writing, and more adult-oriented. Um, I thought they could always do that with Star Wars and... They're doing it with Andor. I'm actually shocked and amazed uh, that Andor exists. And the first few episodes didn't really reveal what it what was actually going on. Um, but this is the Star Wars show that I've been hoping for. It's so good and so much better than all the other garbage they've been producing. Right? I mean, I watched all of them. You know, even the Obi-Wan Kenobi, which was just, again, it felt... So poorly written and just so horrible. 
the fact that they came up with Andor, I'm amazed. Anyway, please check out Andor. I know there's hardly anything to make you check out Andor, considering how horrible all the other stuff has been and how unknown of a character Andor is, but Cassian Andor is his name, actually. But anyway, it's quite impressive. And it just keeps getting better and better. Anyway, also quite impressive, I was looking for more new electronic music, and I found an album from an artist I had never heard of before. And I've been listening to it. This is a really good album so far. Very impressed. This is Freedom Riders by Shindo. <coughs> Has a really cool album cover, very reminiscent of like a 70s album cover with some abstract art, kind of a blue and yellowish theme, a kind of a weird robot character. But this sounds like right up my alley. Giving me some uh, some vibes of that band... Um, what, what's that band? Uh, yeah, Sunscreen. I love Sunscreen too, but this is giving me a little bit of that. But this is really good so far. Uh, and I found some information on Shindo. Then this album was released today, October 21st, 2022. Freedom Riders, this is, this is a quote from Shindo herself. Freedom Riders is about living in a world where there is peace. And all our basic needs are are fulfilled. Each being having the right to live in peace, be happy, and to be. We are all freedom riders. Some of us get some of us get lost and need to get back to the source. It's almost like the like 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 a a, a utopian society, like I've been talking about in theory. This I do like this music a lot. And here's here's the press release writing: Shindo readies her fifth album. Freedom Riders on her MTM Records imprint with the release of her vinyl-focused Wake Up EP offering a four-track preview into the project while unveiling a selection of diverse electronic productions for home listening through to the dance floor. Over two decades, Dutch DJ and producer Shindom Nwusu, a.k.a. Shindo, has established her presence as one of house and techno's most loved talents while carving a true path to her own vision. I like it. Based in Amsterdam and featuring as a key part of the city's rich and blossoming underground scene with performances across the Mart, the Mart Kantin Shelter in Tuishaven. A lot of tough pronunciations today. To international institutions such as the Bergen to Fabric. I've, I've listened to some Fabric compilations. Her releases... On the likes of Records, Cocoon, B-Pitch Control, and I also know B-Pitch Control. And her 2020, 2021 release, The Observer, on Jeff Mills' iconic axis, cemented her reputation as one of the scene's first talents. Having launched her own label, MTM Records, why does that, that reminds me of Mary Tyler Moore and that little cat, meow, who's actually at the, who's actually at the end of Remington Steel with, with a Sherlock Holmes hat and a pipe. Releasing four EPs on that on the label to date, October signals the arrival of the label's first album in the form of her 10-track Freedom Riders, an expansive and diverse project created in lockdown, capturing sonics from across the spectrum, with the LP preceded by Nuosu's four-track album sampler EP titled Wake Up. This is good. I like it. I like that. I, I always like when I find new music that I like. 
And it's a great cover, too. Shindo. S-H-I-N-E-D-O-E. Shindo. Well, maybe her name isn't. It's C-H-I-N-E-D-U-M. Maybe it's pronounced Shindo. Nuosu. It's tough to pronounce some words. All right, outside on the porch now. The weather's slightly better. It's nice and sunny. Still pretty chilly, though. And I am feeling better. I haven't taken any cold medicine today. There's a few tests of the new uh, Flea Devil system. is promising. I think it's, it's going in a good direction. And really, I mean, uh, this mechanism, taking it, whereas it already was kind of unlike any other solitaire game that I've ever heard of, or any card game I've ever heard of, this is taking it even further um, in its own in its own direction. So, uh, very happy about that. That it, it's continuing to evolve, and uh, hopefully, will I'll be able to tune it to a point where it um, right every game is exciting, pleasurable to play, challenging, and really fun. Um, as you know, when you think about some of the more popular games, they are very simple and kind of silly and stupid in some ways, but they're very soothing. It's a comfort and ritual. And that brings us to the uh, the next topic here: morphic resonance. Let me continue this cigar. See if it tastes any better today than it did yesterday. It is a Rocky Patel Royale. There's a new uh, video, just about a month old. On YouTube, by Rupert Sheldrake, who is the, one of the main proponents and the creator of this theory, it is on YouTube. It's called "How Morphic Resonance Affects Our Memories, Families, Rituals, and Festivals," and uh, it's interesting. Some new aspects of the theory are in there. There's also a few worrying aspects, such as uh, Sheldrake's wife Jill is now doing. Um, workshops and uh, I'm assuming making money through therapies and processes related to uh, morphic resonance sounds a little um, scammy or cultish but it just it it just raised those warning signs in me so I don't know about that I I would need to know more about that but in terms of the basic theory um, I think it's extremely important to know about this theory as a potential explanation for a lot of phenomena we see in the world that are as yet unexplained. So morphic resonance theorizes, and this is my understanding of it, that there is um, a basic force in nature that uh, basically shapes resonate with each other. It's hard to put in the words. Um, Essentially, the way something is, its shape its form, its pattern, right, um, can affect other instances of similar patterns in the future. This would be a force of a similar type as gravity, for example. Gravity is, there's a gravitational field. We observe this, right? We can observe the effects of gravity, though as Sheldrake mentions, we can't really directly measure gravity. We have to measure the weight of something or the acceleration of something. We, we really, we, we theorize gravity as a field because we see the, the, uh, the results of it, right? Right? The thing is, right, things seem to 
like an apple will fall from a tree. You know, we can see this, and it's been theorized that this is something called gravity or gravitational field, right? There have been some alternate speculations, and I know part of the uh, flat earth, the aspects of flat earth which seem to be deliberately and provocatively uh, bad ideas, as I talked about last time, um, say there is no such thing as gravity, and they're trying to characterize it as buoyancy or something like that, which doesn't really seem plausible, though one theory I had heard on the flat earth side that does seem at least self-consistent is that we're living on a plane which is uh, accelerating upwards at a regular rate, right? So that there is no gravity. It's just, as you know, like when you, when you drive real fast in a car, you get pushed against your seat, right? It's because of inertia, yeah. But anyway, right, the idea is that the morphic resonance is the result of a morphic field, an aspect of nature that is a little harder to um, get at. Like you can, you can sort of say, hey, if I pick this thing up and I drop it, it falls. What is causing it to fall? Well, in a way, we look around us at the world around us and wonder how did it get to be this way? Plants and animals and cars and trees and houses and things like that. How did this all happen? Where did it all come from? And um, we've been, you know, as a topic I've delved into a lot of this show is, you know, sort of creation versus evolution in general. A god created it, which sort of begs more questions, or a universe exploded out of nothing, which Sheldrake mentions. Who was it that said science can explain everything if you give them one miracle? The Big Bang, every, all the energy and matter came out of nothing. Anyway, morphic resonance provides, I think, in a way, a much stronger case for evolution, right, as an explanation for how things got to be this way, right, in a way. And it was interesting because one thing I didn't realize that he mentioned is that in recent years, right, strict Darwinian evolutionary theories um, have been a bit on the wane and that uh, epigenetics is the is the blanket term for uh, theories which I think when I remember hearing about Lamarck, who I think was before Darwin, who talked about life forms passing on characteristics that they had gained during their life to their offspring, right? So changes in form that happened after they were born were passed on. This was something that was considered a laughing stock, ridiculous. You couldn't even mention it. The idea was that your genetics were established the moment you were conceived, when your genetic code was set, and that that and that code, which has nothing to do with your life experience, would be the only thing you pass on to the next generation. But it seems that in current biological science, epigenetics, which is trying to figure out ways of how could characteristics gained during the life of, of, of the organism could then be passed on to the next generation. And they're looking, I think, for um, material, you know, be, for some reason the, the idea of the morphic field is something that science has completely rejected and they will not even begin to look into.
because it's just something different. Though, just like gravity, it's a force of nature that we're observing the results of, and that's why we're theorizing about it, right? But I wasn't aware that strict neo-Darwinism had been a bit on the downturn and that epigenetics, right, has been on the rise. I did not realize that. So in a way, it plays right into the morphic resonance theory, which is how is it that characteristics gained during an organism's life can be passed on, whereas it's very difficult on strict, you know, uh, genetic sense how it could be passed on um, in terms of morphic resonance, right? How is it that we as human beings, I exist now, how, how is it that you don't just fall apart the next minute? How do you keep retaining the same shape? And in this talk, Sheldrake talked about how you're resonating with yourself in the past. It's, how, it's keeping your shape, right? Because you're following the pattern of yourself in the past, right? That's the strongest pattern you have to follow, right? And then and my thought is, you know, it's that it's basically um, your parents, your relatives, all other people presently, all other people in the past, and then all other mammals, all other animals and all other life forms, right? You're, you're connected to all of it, but at each at different levels of intensity, right? So, but you resonate with yourself in the past more than anything else to keep you going is the idea. To keep your pattern intact, you're depending on a repetition of form through the morphic f- field of yourself. Now, this talk also gets into the topic of um, traditions, festivals, religions and sacred places as, in a way, um, for example, a place where people have been worshipping in a particular religion for a long, long time, like thousands of years, would have a resonant power more than a brand new place. But I think I could also, well, relate it to what I was talking about before. People hanging out at stores talking about pop culture it, it basically, why did Star Wars become Star Wars? Because so many people saw it that when you saw it, you were resonating with all the other people who saw it, and it became something much bigger, something much more important, something much more special, right? And like my whole generation, the Generation X, as Kevin Smith said at one point, you know, Star Wars was our Vietnam. It was our, that one moment that happened in our formative years that affected our entire life, right? So it's more than just a point of commonality for people to um, hang out and talk to each other. It really is, it becomes something more than that. So morphic resonance and pop culture are very much interconnected. Or you could explain the pop the popularity of popular culture, the pop, right? It's the word popular is right in there. The prevalence of pop culture through morphic resonance. And I experienced this in a very specifically in the terms of the Beatles, right? Growing up, because I was born in 67, the Beatles were still together. But all during my childhood, I really didn't know about the Beatles or much pop or rock music at all. It wasn't until... 
you know, the early 80s, I got into popular music, you know, the early MTV days, the new wave scene. Then I started getting into classic rock. And finally, around 1990, I really started getting into the Beatles in a big way. And I felt that as I was delving into it, it, in retrospect, looking back on the process, every bit of it was much more, had much more depth and meaning and importance than it should have. You know, four lads from Liverpool playing music. And I think it's because I was resonating with that worldwide phenomenon that was so powerful in our morphic field here in this world that I picked up on that now years later, right? This is 1990, so 30 years, 30 to 35 years after the the main Beatlemania, I didn't experience the first time, but I felt that I was picking up on that those vibrations. And I know the urge to counter this argument saying that subtle cultural clues like noticing how people held the Beatles to be important throughout your life. When you started getting into them, you remembered how other people thought they were important. So that, you know, influenced you. Yes, I know this is a sort of a maddeningly difficult thing to measure. Although Rupert Sheldrake does have a number of really specific scientific experiments to perform to essentially uh, build evidence that there is a, 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 a morphic field as one of the basic aspects of nature, along with gravity, ma- electromagnetism, the nuclear forces, quantum forces, right? Um, these, this would be another aspect of nature, right, as we understand it. In terms of the development of life, then, I think that you could say that, right, let's look at, right, neo-Darwinism as it exists today and its difficulty in explaining how did it get started, right? Well, you might imagine a primal world where there's nothing that we would consider organic, but the kind of the primal soup that I talked about a few episodes ago, remember the Julia Child video from the Smithsonian. And in the neo-Darwinist approach, you would have to have, it would have to be through random chance that these things would self-organize into particular patterns. With morphic resonance though, right, patterns that were formed would then influence future patterns through the morphic field, right? Morphic, morph meaning shape, I think, right? Morphic field. So that as time went on, um, patterns that tended toward self-replication, for example, would be magnified. And as time went on, would be magnified all the more. So you could imagine an inorganic world producing the first simple cellular organism using morphic resonance as opposed to divine intervention or intelligent design, right? So, in a strange way, it's odd that science, popular science, has, reject, has rejected morphic resonance as pseudoscience when there are actually pathways to experimental data and evidence towards it and how really, if, right, it can supercharge uh, an evolutionary 
certainly not no longer neo-Darwinist, but a new kind of evolutionary theory. How did life get started, and how did it get to the point it is today, right? In the same way that there exists elect- an electromagnetic field, gravitational fields, and quantum fields, uh, how difficult would it be to accept that there's a morphic field that is another aspect of nature, right? And where those things came from, well, that's well, the same question you can ask, where did the morphic field come from? Well, where did the electromagnetic field come from, right? I know that materialist atheists like to say, well, it just is. Well, that's not a very good explanation, but fine. We don't have to push past that barrier. Um, here's something that can, if taken in isolation from anything else, can if their goal is to build a model of the world without the need for any god, which, hey, we don't have proof of God, so it is a good idea to try to build a model of the world without God, this potentially scientific uh, discovery of the morphic field would bolster their case for a world that came to be this way without the existence of God. Though I think Sheldrake, you know, he points out that, you know, the existence of mathematics, the existence of um, these existing fields and the existence of matter and energy and everything else, well, where did it all come from? It just blew up in an explosion, the Big Bang? But again, that's a persistent problem in terms of these philosophical questions. I'd say that on the personal level, I've noticed something that I think could be attributed to morphic resonance in this show, The Overnightscape, I feel that um, I always sort of note subtly in the depths of my mind how how is it I'm able to keep doing this? And I think it's because each show is building on all the shows that I've already done. And the ritual-like nature of my production process, even to the point that I'm really producing show art using the same exact kind of file name structure, the same image sizes that I've always been using in a way that just sort of makes sense to me. It, I don't really know why, but I'm just um, I'm just doing it that way. It's like I'm sort of performing a ritual that's strengthening and reinforcing itself over time. So it definitely feels like a morphic resonance kind of thing going on. And with an understanding of this phenomenon, if this phenomenon, if, right, some of the uh, thoughts of how to control a world of people if this was common knowledge. And it's interesting because Sheldrake does say that when he mentioned this theory to his colleagues, because he is a scientist, a biologist by trade, uh, morphic resonance to his colleagues in the scientific world, they are horrified by it, they reject it, calling it pseudoscience, and they re- completely are um, upset by any mention of it. However, his colleagues in India, for example, he, he mentioned his, his Hindu colleagues, when he mentioned it, uh, they were not impressed whatsoever. They're like, well, yes, we are aware of this phenomenon because the Hindu religion tradition and their entire culture is sort of acknowledges a morphic resonance. Uh, and, and in fact, he said in all of Asian philosophies and traditions, right, religions and mythologies and things, Morphic resonance is a much more present and, and, and much more understood 
uh, rather than in the West. That if your goal is to move world society in certain directions, you could know about, you could know how to manipulate and use morphic resonance um, almost as a weapon, right? For example, you can use another type of field as a weapon, gravity. Uh, bombers, right? Dropping bombs on people. Well, how do you know how to do that? Well, you're um, exploiting an understanding of the gravitational field. You fly an airplane and you open a hatch and you drop a giant explo exploding object out of the hatch. It falls down and blows up on the ground. In the same way, you could use morphic resonance as a weapon to um, achieve your goals, right? So, as we've been seeing here in the United States, for example, the uh, political um, dialogue, rhetoric that people are exposed to, the tone of it has changed greatly from previous generations, right? So similar to the, to the idea that um, the Beatles could become something more than just a musical group through this mass exposure, right? And I have theorized in the past that morphic resonance, the understanding of the morphic field was used to create the Beatles uh, phenomenon at the time, right? How it's popularized, how it's spoken about. Once you plant the seed, it gets bigger and bigger and it, and it begins to resonate, right? So, um, Whereas, right, general society, no one's ever heard of morphic resonance and the scientific community rejects it as heresy and specifically as heresy. I think they've said it's heretical to talk about morphic resonance in science. That for those that actually know it's, it is real, they can use it to manipulate groups of people, large and small, um, in, in a very effective way. Right, so the politics in America, where there's these two big political philosophies, the left and the right, um, and the type of rhetoric and the type of uh, discourse that's that's happening has has been coarsened. Right, it's it's it's, it's much more um, emotional and entertaining rather than than rational. And as more and more people, for example, look at like the, the, the Trump phenomenon, as more and more people sort of look at Trump as this persona, this personality, as, uh, you know, a fighter against the other side, it takes on more importance than it should. This kind of jerky guy that was kind of a good Howard Stern guest now becoming the president and becoming the leader of this whole movement that this was not an accident, though you could say that originally these types of uh, morphic resonance-related phenomena had, did happen by accident, that if you were to know about it and manipulate it, it, it could become much more powerful. And uh, as, a, as a tool for control, it's massive. Now, I don't know how I meant, I, I guess I don't resonate with either side 
uh, I don't know why. I don't, you know, at one point in my life back in the early to mid-1990s, up to about 96 or so. So I say like 1990 to 96, I did, uh, you know, consider myself a Republican, a conservative, but I, I really fell out of that as I saw so many flaws in that philosophy and additionally have always seen many flaws in the philosophy of the other side, the um, the left or the liberals or the Democrats. Somehow I just don't resonate with either side. But many most people do resonate with one or the other side. And you notice the people that are the most influenced by this political phenomenon are the ones that watch the TV news channels that promote one or the other side. And it's the experience of watching the news channels, which is the performance. It is the ritual that is repeated. Uh, and as you notice, this is this is one of the formative experiences for me was the week after 9-11 happened on you know September 11th, 2001, the... Um, you know, when we say 9-11, I know some of you may not know what I'm talking about. You're further in the future. It was a day, September 11th, 2001, where there was an attack on America by, uh, the mainstream says, by uh, Islamic terrorists flying planes into buildings. Uh, two planes hitting the Twin Towers in New York City, one plane hitting the Pentagon in Washington, and one plane destined for another target downed by the passengers in a field in Pennsylvania. Not to, again, don't even, I'm not even going to get into the whole conspiracy theory of it. I, I would suspect that the official explanation is probably not the actual explanation. That's a whole other topic. But I remember um, I, I didn't go to, there was a Tuesday, so I didn't go to work until the following uh, Monday, I think. Although the office was open on Friday. Um, I remember laying in front of the TV and at the time, I think, watching CNN and just watching the repetition, right? The rep- repetition of showing the planes hitting the buildings, the buildings collapsing and all that stuff. And uh, resonance is all about repetition. The more it's repeated, the stronger it gets. So at that point, it really started to turn me off to TV news. And then I remember well, whatever year it was, 2005 or 2006, when the second space shuttle exploded. I started watching the coverage and um, they just showed the space shuttle exploding over and over and over and over again and I, I'm like, I turned the TV off. I'm like, I cannot watch this endless repetition of this thing. I mean, okay, I understand. It happened. I'm sorry it blew up, but I, that, I, I know it now. I don't need to keep watching it over and over and over again. There's a point where it becomes there's something uh, that seems wrong about this endless repetition of these these particular events, right? But you see that on those news channels today, when I have seen them, this endless repetition of particular narratives and particular stories and particular ideas. So I wonder if morphic resonance was more commonly understood and known that individuals would suss out what I have theorized that this particular form of media manipulation using repetition is being done deliberately using the morphic field as a, essentially as a weapon against people the same way as gravity is used to, to pull a bomb to the ground, right? It's an aspect of nature 
that um, right some individuals and some groups seem to be aware of and know how to use but one guy who wrote a book about it like what back in the, like was it 1990 or something and uh, has been really trying to popularize the theory to be met with a, a wall of resistance in the scientific community is that wall of resistance because you know they don't want that uh, they don't want that uh, that knowledge out there and it does relate I think to the brainwashing phenomenon which is another topic that is very well known in certain circles but is not commonly taught right the idea that um, your natural ability to separate truth from fiction and judge what people tell you are they telling the truth are they lying that if you're in a state that's uh, mentally physically or emotionally exhausted it'll bypass that filter it'll become part of your reality um, and I, I, I this is the very beginning of me trying to correlate the two of brainwashing and, and morphic resonance though they do seem to be related right it would seem that um, it's all kind of when we talk about a group dynamic get a bunch of people together in a room and ex and exhaust them mentally physically and or emotionally and then start telling them things and they'll they'll believe it even though they shouldn't right the group angle was thought to be not as important but now that we think about localized morphic resonance that the brainwashing phenomenon in terms of using groups of people makes much more sense in, 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 in the light of including morphic resonance in, in the, uh, the discussion. So anyway, I was interested that there were a few new uh, bits and pieces and angles um, uh, with that new talk by Sheldrake. Though, as I said, I, a few of the weird scam cult kind of suggestions of his wife doing workshops and stuff did kind of turn me off. But anyway... Now on to another topic of importance. Lip balm. Yes, I just received a delivery of lip balm from a hurrah. Hurrah. We can do some lip balm reviews. Yes, I know we've been dealing with some pretty heavy topics, but what if your lips are chapped? Is it because people in the past had dry lips too? Morphic resonance? We shall see. These should be some pretty groovy lip balms here. All right. So even though I've tried to wean myself off of my lip balm addiction, I haven't really been using it over the summer. I think that as it's getting drier, right, as it's getting colder out, I do need some lip balm. And it's surprisingly hard to find vegan lip balm because most lip balms will use at least beeswax. And, you know, again, like if my lips were pretty chapped, I happen to have a random stick of actual traditional chapstick that I normally wouldn't even consider. I had it, so I've been using it, and I'm assuming it has lots of non-vegan ingredients. Again, I'm trying to be a little bit, like, not... I, I'm strict as a vegan, but, I mean, there's certain gray areas that you can let things slide a little bit. But when shopping for lip balm, uh, there's very few brands that are... And it looks like some of them are... Like, Ecolips is a brand that has a line that is now... Uh, vegan, though most of them do have beeswax in them. Um, so let's see. 
And this is interesting. It's in a brown cardboard pack um, envelope, and it's from Hurrah Balm, vegan lip balm, cruelty-free, from Whitefish, Montana. So this is a Montana company. I think I ordered a bunch. I, I, I hope they're all in here. Let's take a look. What the hell? Ooh, whoa. Let's see. Yeah, I ordered one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I, I ordered seven of these. There's, there's a number of uh, flavors or scents here. Let's see, there's a little uh, brochure. Hurrah. So it's sort of like hooray, but with raw. Hurrah, made with organic, vegan, and raw ingredients. Certified vegan, highest quality raw ingredients, handcrafted in small batches, premium fresh oil, premium fresh pressed oils, certified organic ingredients, no preservatives, non-toxic, gluten-free, natural flavors, plant-based colors, oval tube fits perfect in your pocket. I don't know if they should be shouting out about uh, natural flavors because that's like a, the mystery chemical in all of our products these days. We manufacture fresh in our own NOP and EcoCert certified facility. I don't know what NOP is. The Holy Trinity of Lip Balm. Oh, so here, here's more quotes. The Washington Post says, the Holy Trinity of Lip Balm is elusive, shiny, but not gluey or waxy. Hurrah Bomb meets these requirements, plus it's tasty. I don't want like um, I don't want like a lipstick. I just want something to, to soothe my lips. Teen Vogue says, Hurrah for hurrah, hooray for hurrah, bomb. This yummy new line of lip bombs is just plain wonderful. All natural, organic, fair trade, vegan, and oh yes, did I mention yummy? I don't want to eat it. I just jeez. Oprah magazine says, hmm, not sure. What we love more, the organic, raw, cruelty-free ingredients are the delightful flavors. Backpacker says, the tastiest and smoothest feeling cure for chap lips we've tried. See, that sounds better for me. Healthy Bitch Daily. Now, wait a second. <laughs> Pucker up, baby. Offering a dozen flavors that make our mouths water. Hurrah. Lip balms rock our world. The New York Times says, hurrah. Lip balms include no petroleum jelly. Not too draggy, too glossy, or too reminiscent of eighth-grade bombs with cloying, fruity aromas. I'm just looking for some freaking vegan chapstick. What is this? Uh, Sunset says, hurrah bombs come in playful flavors and go on luxuriously smooth. Daily Candy says, get your kisser ready. A new line of moisturizers, raw, vegan, and not too sticky, and pretty much perfect. And veg news or veg news, enough variety to stash one in every pair of pants you own. They make us say, you guessed it, hurrah. Okay. Great. And now inside here, they've wrapped in brown paper the seven I bought, I'm assuming. Let's see about this. Wrapped up in Montana. Some operation they have going on there. And I say, there they are. Look. Wow. One, two, three, four, five, six. And they added another one, vanilla orange. Wow. They gave me a free one. Wow. I guess because I ordered so many. So let's see. These are the flavors I got. They have a bunch of flavors, but these are the ones I got. I got the Moon Lip Balm, which tastes like the moon. Is it, does it taste like a plasma? 
this vanilla and orange one that is more like a regular lip balm. It's kind of interesting. Then we have unscented. You know, just go for the basics. We have the coconut milk and lemongrass. This is more of like a an Indian Ayurvedic mix. Coconut lip balm. We have, of course, coffee flavored, uh, coffee bean lip balm, licorice lip balm, and finally, root beer lip balm. Yes. So, let's see. It's been a while since I've done a lip balm review on the show, right? <laughs> yeah. Let me do my show notes on this. This is very, very complex uh, show notes. All right, there's a lot to process here. Uh, let me try it. How do you open these up? You have to kind of like rip, rip this little piece that's a little piece of, uh, yeah. All right. How about vanilla and orange, the free one I got? That almost smells like root beer. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's kind of weird. It does smell quite good. It's a bit more softer than usual lip balms, but that seems very good. This one's very nice, very spicy, vanilla and orange. I like that one. And should I go in that same order? I guess I'll wipe my lips off each time, almost like clearing the palate, you know. So how about moon? Let's see, moon lip balm. That's the right way to open it, though. Just sort of rip off this little foil type thing. Yeah, okay. Moon. Wow, moon is very similar to vanilla orange. Now, wait a minute. It does smell very similar. Hmm. No, this one's a little bit, a little creamier. Tastes like moon plasma. <laughs> yeah. This is wild stuff. I hope I found a good lip balm. I've been really struggling because I've been having that walrus oil one, which is, you know, much more masculine and manly than these. But, you know, I don't want to be so hung up on that to deprive myself of good lip balm, you know. Let's now try unscented. See, you really can't open it unless you do sort of pick at that, that foil on the edge. But you don't have to take all of it off and, and so you can sort of open it, but it's a little annoying. Oh, no, there's a little arrow that shows you where to pull it. Okay. I'll get better at opening these through morphic resonance, of course, because the previous times I've opened it will make me be able to open it better. Unscented. Perhaps the most manly of all these scents. There's no scent. Hmm. Yeah, it works. There's, then there's no scent. I like it. I like the unscented. Right? And then we have coconut, mint, and lemongrass. Hurrah. Let me try to see if I can open this better. Do, do, do. You're kind of ripping off some of the ingredients, though, when you're, when you're opening it, but it's a necessary process. All right, here we go. Coconut, mint, and lemongrass. Ooh, quite quite remarkable scent. Uh-oh. The Mojo, I know he's going to want to knock these off the table. Mmm, it smells very good. 
they all have the same very kind of creamy and um what do you think kitty <laughs> you like the smell of it it's very good though it's very good i don't know if i like this one quite as much as some of the other ones no don't knock it off the table kitty all right there's four left here i wipe off my lip next we have coconut just just regular coconut and these were not terribly expensive either so hopefully some of these will work for me sticking the that part at the top you have to rip off on the uh, envelope that i will discard soon here's a regular coconut i'm fond of the coconut uh aspect it smells ra rather subtle let's see this is good a good subtle uh, coconut experience i like this one it's simple and it's good coconut lip balm but now of course the holy trilogy coffee licorice and root beer these are the ones i was really impressed by this the flavors of let's get some coffee going on here Open it up. <clears throat> so when they started the company, they were resonating with previous lip balm manufacturers to create their company. No, I'm not making fun of morphic resonance. But it could be applied to just about anything. All right, here we go. Coffee. Mmm, wow, that's, that's kind of cool. It has a kind of a cool scent. I'm glad I got my sense of smell back because otherwise it would be kind of hard to review this stuff. Try this out here. Oh, it broke. What the heck? The coffee one broke off. Hold on. It's like a coffee break. Hey. Oh, this is good. I do kind of like the, uh, the subtle coffee sensation. I don't know if there's any caffeine in it, though. <laughs> Coffee lip balm. Nice. This one's really good. I like this one a lot. I like coffee. See, they're getting better and better as they go on. Yeah, this one's good. Didn't I have like a Dunkin' Donuts coffee lip balm once a long time ago? I don't know. All right, let's try licorice. I'm leaving the best for last, root beer. If they only had birch beer, that would be like the ultimate. Can you imagine? Hurrah. Would you consider adding birch beer to your lineup? I'm sure it'd be a big seller in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> and you'll probably could just use the you probably just use the same root beer one, but just call it birch beer, you know. No, you have to put actual birch in there, damn it. Here we go. Licorice now. I don't think it's salt licorice, so there shouldn't be any ammonia in there. That'd be cool salt licorice lip balm with ammonia flavors too. Ooh, this smells interesting. I like this one. Again, subtle, nice and subtle uh, licorice uh, lip balm. Mm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to, hide, have to hide these from the cats though. They're gonna want to knock them over. Vegas, what do you think? You wanna smell some licorice lip balm, Kitty? Just smell it. Vegas, what do you think? He's interested in it. <laughs> He's licking his lips. He's confused. Licorice, I don't know. It's like 
not quite as distinct of a of a scent as the uh, um, the coffee. Certainly not bad though. Almost reminds me of some other scent. I'm trying to. I like it though. I like the licorice, but it's not. Um, it feels a something slightly different than licorice. Something in the something adjacent to licorice. Oh, I can't identify it. Anyway, finally we have root beer lip balm. I've done a lot of, you know, on the topic of root beer. And I was so interested that, you know, talking to our British listeners and friends in Britain, everyone in Britain seems to hate root beer when they try it. They're just not used to the flavor. They say it tastes like medicine. You know, political chaos and a lack of root beer. What's going on over there in in the British Isles, please? Here we go. Our final lip balm review. Root beer. I have I have high expectations. Oh yeah, there it is, the root beer scent, which is what is what is root, root beer is one of these flavors just like bubblegum. Like what is it? It's so distinctive, but where does it come from? It's a, it's an artificial construct. Let's try it out here. Hmm. Oh yeah, this is nice. Nice. The flavor of root beer on your lips. Root beer on your lips. Mmm. I like so this one and the coffee are my favorite. And the unscented, maybe. But anyway, they're all good. Anyway, hurrah, lip balm. H-U-R-R-A-W. Exclamation mark! Hurrah! Let me immediately get a uh, Ziploc bag to store these in so the cats don't scatter them to the four winds. And classic original chapstick I'll throw in there, too. I'm not going to use that crap anymore. So I have to choose which one is going to go in my pocket to start with. <coughs> the Ziploc bag will keep them together in a way the cats cannot knock them down. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to just... I think I'm going to have to keep the root beer, yeah. They're all good, but root beer is the winner. Just, just the knowledge that I have root beer lip balm in my pocket will make me happy. Nice. Very nice. The lip balm process was a, was a success. Oh, look, on the invoice here, there's a hand, hand-drawn, a heart. Thanks, Frank. And they made some comments. On the coffee bean lip balm, they're like, yum. Moon lip balm, so good. And they, they, they did a little, like, upside-down question mark to ex- accent the, the moon lip balm is so good. So these folks out in Montana. I wonder if any of my relatives in Montana work at this place. Probably not. But you never know. Where, where is Whitefish, Montana? Let me take a look on the map. Because I visited Montana, but I don't know if I visited Whitefish. Whitefish. MT is the code for Montana because MO was already used by Missouri because MI was already used by Mississippi, right? Isn't that how it works? Whitefish, Montana. Oh, we can look at the actual uh, address of the place. Look up their their headquarters. This is near Kalispell, which is... uh, Wow. So I... The area I visited was in uh, around, you know, south of Hamilton, a little town called Darby. You can see on Route 93 there, Darby, Montana, is where my, my relatives were li- live. And some of them still live there in Darby. 
So much to the north is, uh, is uh, this white fish. Let's see how far it is to Darby. Darby to whitefish. <coughs> it is uh, nearly a four-hour drive up to whitefish. Wow. That is wild. So it's not that close. Okay. All right. So where's this place located? Let's see. Where was the address? I thought it was on here. Mm -hmm. what the hell? Oh, it's, it's, it's on the... Uh... Oh, yeah. Oh, they have a P.O. box, so we don't, we don't know where they're... Their factory is, but let's let's look. Let's look at Whitefish here and see. Is there like an industrial park or something here? Or, I don't know. Let's like go down the main street. Let's go down the main drag and see what's going on here in Whitefish on Google Maps. <laughs> Whoa, we're inside. Uh, we're inside a. A restaurant or something. What the heck is this? Latitude 48 Bistro? Yeah, I think a lot of people from California go on, on trips to Montana. So a lot of fancy stuff there. Oh, this is like in a basement. A little basement room in Latitude 48 Bistro. That happens sometimes when you when you drag that little character into uh, the map. You'll see... Uh, oh, wow, here's the upstairs of this cafe. It looks quite lovely. I think I should take a trip to Montana. Yeah. Look, you can go outside. Wow. You can go actually inside and outside the places. That's cool. Here's a, there's a saloon over here. Hold on. I think I have to... Uh, here we go. Bulldog Saloon. Looks like quite a lovely little town. There in Montana. Where the hell's the saloon, though? I lost it. I lost the saloon. Let me see. Bulldog Saloon. Oh, maybe it's this way. Go this way. Bulldog Saloon. There it is. And let's see if there's any vegan places in Whitefish, Montana. I would imagine there would be. Rebel Roots Kitchen, Plantyful, wow, Wrap and Roll Cafe. They only have vegan options. Plantyful is temporarily closed. It's a vegan restaurant, but it's closed. Oh, come on. Come on. Yeah, I'm still listening to this uh, Freedom Riders by Shindo. Really impressed. I, I heard the whole album, and it's uh, starting it over now. Such a great album. Really impressive. So happy to have found an album released today. That's so good. But anyway, um, yeah, I just I just had a realization about Morphic Resonance, which is that it is kind of annoying because it accepting the phenomenon uh, goes against some of, at least for me personally, some of my basic angles of approach to daily life, which I suppose is that um, as an individual, we're all sort of faced with 
limited resources and seemingly overwhelming tasks to perform and that your attempts at managing the situation and eking out some sort of existence and some sort of worthwhile um, uh, works in this in the context of this difficult situation is sort of provides a kind of meaning to life right but it's sort of like my own struggle in the face of this chaotic mess I find myself in if I sort of imagine that I'm resonating with all these people in the past it's sort of uh, it, it becomes maybe less fun in a way. I don't know. But yeah, that's probably a very, uh, you know, Western way of approaching this. That it's, you know, I know the all is one and we're all part of the same system is, 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 is always in the background of various philosophies. But I don't know. This sort of like me against the world thing is kind of, I guess what's been ingrained in us in, in the U.S. and the West here. Well, the Western world, not like the American West, but the whole Western world. Montana's in the West, but New Jersey is definitely in the East of the United States, but it's in the Western world. Music. All right, later on, back on the porch. So I've been doing some uh, playtesting with the, the newest rendition of uh, the rules of Flea Devil, and it's been very it's been very good. I feel like I was feeling a bit of despair that I had kind of lost the script on the game, and basically I had sort of ruined it with all these additional rules. But that was all necessary to get to this point of the game, where I don't know. I feel like it's getting really close to being the right the right rendition of the rules, the right version of the game there's a there's a real uh like a tension as you're playing right you want to uh invest as much as you can early on so in theory the current under the current rules the highest score would be 25 that is uh for every dollar you spend you invest one as well and as there's 54 cards, two of them are zonkers that stay in the market. And, um, right, you're going to wind up, I think most likely you have to, I guess it's pot, well, I'm trying to think. I've never really had it, but you usually have to, uh, you know what, I don't think, I think it is possible that you could end with, with nothing in your bankroll. But usually you have two um, because, but I'm trying to think, no, it. Well, if the two zonkers are on the edges, in theory, you could you could do um, so. There could be uh, yeah, you could score twenty six in theory. I think. Hmm. <laughs> I'd have to figure it out. Uh, but anyway, um, so it really it's just the strategy of you know I, I'm sort of figuring out like how much I can afford to invest as opposed to keeping my bankroll high enough that I can finish the game. If you're too conservative, you'll wind up with extra money in your bankroll, which doesn't count towards the final score. But it is breezy and pleasurable to play. Again, no double zonkers. I use two zonkers, uh, which I feel like 
for me, I need those two zonkers because that does raise the difficulty level. On previous versions, I had, uh, you know, had zero, one, or two as easy, regular, and hard in terms of difficulty levels. Um, but I feel like uh, that might only be necessary for someone learning the game. Once you get familiar with the game, I think you'll just, you know, I don't really feel a need to vary it. So it's coming along. I'm very happy with this current set of rules. It's pretty exciting because, I, as I said, I don't think any anyone else has invented a game like this. And it really is, you can pick up and play, and at any time you can put the deck back down and, and like pause the game and then keep going whenever you want, right? So it's it's always in deck form. It never has to be separated, and you know it's always one deck. And uh, because of that, it it has characteristics. Like I said, I was even playing it on an airplane. You can play it on the bus, um, and it's really a fun game. I mean, I really enjoy. And beyond that, I'm play testing it because I'm I'm trying to invent it. it it's a very fun game. So. Very happy about that. I was reading some reviews of Clerks 3, and a lot of people agree with me. The movie was just terrible. A few people seem to have loved it, which is weird because... I guess towards the end it generates some emotions. I guess some people react to that more. But just considering Clerks, the first movie, you know, the guy should have been able to make a somewhat better movie than this. Some people commented, I guess people that are more familiar with Kevin Smith's life than me, that he uh, he never used to smoke weed, but he started smoking in 2008. And they attribute this creative downfall to his high weed intake. So I don't know if there's any truth to that. Perhaps uh, more likely is uh, a phenomenon that I've sort of commented on where it seems that certain creative people they reach a certain level of stature where everyone around them would be reluctant to criticize their work and progress so they sort of get into this bubble where every everyone is just great great Kevin great you know everything's great you're not getting any feedback from anyone and you know a lot of times someone's internal perception of things can be very skewed um, without anyone to really can give you an honest opinion, you'll wind up with cinematic garbage like Clerks 3. One positive thing I'll say about it, people were talking about, oh my God, I've been waiting for this movie for years. It, there were rumors they were going to make it back in 2016. And honestly, I mean, I may have seen one or, a, a, a story about it once here or there, but I never, I didn't really know it was coming or if it was, if it, if, when I saw that it was out, I was surprised. I, I'm like, maybe I heard something about that a couple of years ago. So it's great to see something without having had all these previews and all this hype about it. It just came out of the blue for me. And that, that, was, that was cool. The movie was not cool. Anyway, another one that I just started hearing about, I think a couple of days ago, is a new TV show called The Peripheral on Amazon Prime Video. Starring Chloe Grace Moretz, who I think she was Hit Girl in... What was the name of that? What was that, uh, that movie? Kill Shot? No. Murder Man? What was the name of that movie? 
where she was hit girl. She was like this psychotic young girl that killed people. Kick ass, right? Kick ass. Man, that seems like such a long time ago. When the hell was that movie? I don't know. It's, it's, that's a good question. When did Kick Ass come out? That could be question of the day. The movie Kick Ass. My God. Oh, God. This is challenging my, my usual uh, chronological sense. Holy shit. All right. It definitely was after 2000. It feels like it was before 2010, so it's in that decade. Kick ass. No, it doesn't. It feels like 2004, 5, or 6. I don't know. I'm thinking 2004, maybe, but. Mm, I don't know. I'm. All right, let's go with 2005. Let me look this up. Hold on a second. What's your guess for question of the day? What did I say? 2005. That's my guess. Oh, that was way off. 2010. Jeez. Wow, I missed that one by a mile. That's like, remember the thing I played on the other side recently? Uh, you stink. You missed that by a mile. It's one of my favorite things I play on the other side. It's, it's, a, it's, it's that movie about films about child mental health. Come on, throw throw the glass at the window. I don't feel like it. Come on, you want to be a pitcher, don't you? I don't feel like it. Come on. And he throws a rock. Uh-huh, you missed that by a mile. You stink. Right? And it's like, uh... My father, he bleeds to brakes. You think your father's important. He probably would be driving a Cadillac. He, I know his father. He drives a Chevrolet. It's in, it's in the, the shop where my father works. Is it true? Is my father out of it like me? And then the woman comes on. Maybe even an average person could be some kind of hero. <laughs> <coughs> and it, the, that whole thing starts off with that like mind-bending music. Right, and it's the same like stock music that was used in that one um, puppet thing about manners. We're having the opera club over tonight. Manners, yuck. <laughs> See, obscure uh, public domain or God only knows what domain films that I find to play on the other side. The audio of, I find it amusing. Anyway, the peripheral, I just started watching. And I watched like the first 10 minutes. And it, Chloe, Glace, G- Chloe Grace Moretz is a bit older now as it's, we're in the future. But she, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's based on a book by William Gibson. I used to read a bunch of the William Gibson books. You know, ner- the guy from did, did Neuromancer and all that. Why no Neuromancer movie or that other guy, Snow Crash? Neil Stevenson. Why no movies on those? Maybe there you know, there probably are movies of them. I just never saw them. But this is a book he he wrote a couple years ago, The Peripheral. It's about a girl living in uh, Appalachia who uses a VR connection to live a life, even though she can't really live a life because she's living in a she's poor and living in the Appalachians. It's giving it, it, just the premise is really reminding me of. Ready Player One, which was a good book, 
but an really kind of an awful movie. This kid living in, he's poor, and he's living in Columbus, Ohio or something, and he gets, he escapes his life in the, in the virtual reality. That guy who wrote Ready Player One, I forget his name, I read his other two books that he put out. Um, Armada, I think, was the second book, and then the third book was Ready Player Two. Awful, awful. Listen, sometimes it's hard, you know, when, when, when you're this wonderkind, as they say, and you produce this incredible work. It's hard to follow it up. Though he did make a good point in Armada, which was that uh, considering you have the technology for uh, space travel and uh, hold on one second. Uh, you know, interstellar warp drives and everything else in all these science fiction movies, especially Star Wars, and you have these these uh, these little fighter spaceships like X-Wings and TIE Fighters, well, you must have the technology to fly them remotely so you're not going to get killed when it blows up like in all the Star Wars movies. So have some sort of base or some sort of really fortified ship far away and then control the fighter ships like remotely and he commented on that, like, why do they all fly in these these ships and all get killed, you know, like in Star Wars? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But obviously Star Wars was based on World War II aerial combat and stuff. And You can forgive it a bit in Star Wars because of its, if its pulp roots, but it really doesn't make any sense why they're risking their lives. I just tried to watch The Last Jedi again, and it is so awful. I tried to get through the first few minutes. It is just unwatchable honestly I'm like maybe it's not as bad as I remember no it's worse and in that opening scene so many of them are getting killed and just stupid bombers talking about bombers they had these space bombers that were dropping bombs on the Star Destroyer horrible horrible listen we already know Last Jedi is amongst the worst movies ever made anyway (laughs) so I don't want to judge Peripheral I just started watching it maybe it's good I don't know it looks good, though. It looks good. it looks like it could be good. Apparently, some of the same people from Westworld are involved in it. But I, I dropped off watching Westworld. I don't know. I, I don't know. There, were, it was really good for one season. Then the second season, the whole show sort of collapsed at the end of the second season. And from people that watched the third season, it was there a fourth. It seemed to have just gotten worse and worse. Listen, not every TV show can be a slam dunk. Na- good throughout the entire run and uh, land- and landing the finish I would still say the best TV show ever in terms of staying good throughout and and uh, nailing the finish is The Americans and that is the best show the show that was good from every episode to the very last one brilliant and I would say, uh, you know, Breaking Bad and especially um, Better Call Saul, I think is, would have to be considered the top five TV show of all time, you know, if not one, the best TV show of all time. Um, re- really quality throughout. Though that's, th- th- those are few and far between. But it does sort of bring up, like, I've been, you know how interested I am in the metaverse and virtual realities and stuff. There seem to be just endless hit pieces in the media about how the metaverse sucks and 
Mark Zuckerberg is an idiot for trying to make the metaverse, and he spent $15 billion and his current metaverse, Horizon World. So I haven't even been able to try out, because I guess you need an Oculus to have it, to play it. I, I don't have one of those. There's only there's so few people in there. And then they're talking about De- Decentraland and Sandbox. Like, you know, remember I tried going in Decentraland and a Sandbox? And to, and to actually play the game, you had to spend like five $6,000 in Ethereum cryptocurrency. What the hell kind of a fucked up? I mean, pardon my French, but I'm not going to play a game that costs $5,000 and looks like shit. Are you crazy? They said that, uh, what was it, Decentraland is, is worth billions of dollars, and yet there's like 85 people in there at any given time. Something like that. I was reading something like that. Well, don't charge $5,000. <laughs> like, I was able to go in, but I was sort of like a, a, a guest. I was sort of a ghost player. I wasn't really able to truly participate because I didn't have enough Ethereum credits. Listen, all this crypto stuff, I don't know why I was able to avoid it. I have just never been interested. I have never bought crypto. I've never been involved in this cryptocurrency, NFTs, or any of it. It just it just always struck me as just like a bad idea, you know. And I and, and I and I just sort of I don't like the idea. I do want there to be a metaverse, and I don't like the idea that crypto anything is going to be at the heart of any metaverse. But I've really been thinking about like I've had such a kind of a clear vision of what a metaverse could be like. Why is it that people that have billions of dollars at their disposal are, are so off the mark? I mean, listen, maybe my ideas are completely unworkable, but it does seem like it's something that could be something great. But, you know, I still will say that all these metaverses look like crap, right? And as I'm, and as I'm playing, like, Overwatch 2... Which I am still playing. It's it's worth checking out. It's free, and you literally can play for free, and not have to spend a single dime on it. Yeah, you're not going to be able to get a lot of the uh, the cool costumes and stuff, but still, you can play the game. The worlds they created, as I mentioned, I think last episode or two episodes ago, are really beautiful, and sort of starting to approach how I would imagine the metaverse should look in order to be uh, worthwhile. But there's something missing. There's some kind of element of who you are in the metaverse and what you're going to be doing, what you're doing that is kind of lost. There's something that I can't quite pin down. It seems like it should be obvious, but it's not something I can really put into words. I don't know. It just seems like... Yeah, it's hard to say. But I mean, I think like the meta, the mini metaverses I go into, such as uh, Tower Unite, which I think is actually really cool. I recommend it. It's on Steam. It's a little, it's just one little island, and there's other people in there, and it's actually pretty well done. But they sort of allow anyone to have any avatar, so everyone is just anime characters and weird, screwed up skeletons and stuff. I mean, I think that, like real big movies and big video games and stuff that you really need like people that have great artistic talent and vision to create the worlds and create the avatars and create the situations. You can't just I know the model of social media 
where it's just user-generated content has worked in some ways, but I just I really don't think that uh, user-generated content is really. And I know this sort of goes against the kind of do-it-yourself uh, ideals that I uh, that I hold dear, but I think that it it really needs to. There really needs to be a lot of excellence in the design of every aspect of it, and you're just not going to get that with user-generated content. You know, I was playing with the cats. You know, they have playtime at night, and then they get their treats. And I put on uh, some Strawberry Alarm Clock. Yeah, it's a, what a great band, the Strawberry Alarm Clock. Kind of a, you know psychedelic pop band from the 60s with only one hit with uh, Incense and Peppermint. Um, all their music is great. I used to have a, a compilation CD and I just enjoy their music more and more all the time. Looks like they're still around. What? They're still playing? They're going to be playing at, this, at the Whiskey A Go-Go on September. I couldn't imagine these guys keep have, have kept going. Wow. Wow. Let me see if I can find some uh see if I can find some footage of latter day strawberry alarm clock performances. No, but I mean like a lot of these one hit wonder bands, they don't really have much else that was good, but strawberry alarm clock, uh really uh amazing stuff. Let's see. <coughs> I'm not sure how many original members. Oh yeah, look, here they are at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Here's from 2015. Wow. There they are. They're still going. Fifteen seems like such a long time ago now. And their hit was like sung by some random guy that came in off the street or something. Someone's friend. See what song they're going to start off with. I would go see them. Alright, we're going to do the song that came out after Incense and Peppermints followed on its coattails. A song called Tomorrow. Oh, I was just listening to that. Well, yeah. It was actually on our second album. It, it actually went to number 23 on Billboard. Yay. It's a great song. One, two, one, two, three, four. Tomorrow. Things don't seem the same. Right now I am with you and Who things won't be the same tomorrow Life will be a different game Right now I am with you and Nice I didn't realize it I have to fly out to the Whiskey A Go-Go I guess I don't know Anyway Good stuff. Check them out. So my wife went to a tricky tray tonight. Um, 
this is like a fundraiser. You know, various organizations are able to fundraise using legal forms of gambling, like bingo and stuff. But uh, a tricky tray is uh, what I grew up knowing as a Chinese auction. Apparently, it's also known as a penny sale. But I think tricky tray, at least around here, is the uh, the preferred term. Obviously, Chinese auction is not going to be used anymore for a number of reasons. You know, uh, so tricky tray, I think, is it. Penny sale sounds kind of weak. Yeah, it's a place where uh, there's an organization that's doing fundraising. And they have uh, local businesses and people contribute prizes. It, it, it could be a day at the spa or a new television set or what have you. And uh, you go there and you buy these tickets. So it's like a raffle in a way. You buy these tickets and you walk around and each of the um, items up, up for grabs has a little jar, hopper, bucket, what have you. And you can put as many tickets as you want in there. Put one, or you could put a lot more if you really want the item. And uh, for each item, they mix them up and draw one ticket, and whoever's ticket that is is the winner. So you're able to, uh, you know, increase your chances by spending more, or you could just, uh, you know, try for try for the luck of it all. So my wife has gotten a lot of stuff at these tricky trays, TVs and computer stuff, and oh my god, all sorts of stuff. So who knows what she's going to get today? I don't know. But apparently it's like a big like formal event. It's a whole thing. And at first she's like, so, someone she was going to go with fell through. So I'm like, she, she, do, do I want to go? And I'm like, yeah. But our, our next door neighbor is going with her. So they're there right now. Hopefully they have a, a good time at the tricky tray. See, it's like a tray where you put the tickets. And it's tricky because you might win, but you might not. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, so cosmologically speaking, thinking about um morphic resonance, you know, my general view of the world and how it works and why it is and everything else is that there is some intention behind it, right? That it's been designed by a mind. Um this is sort of, you know, the uh I guess you could say, you know, one of the bigger questions is, you know, is the world just random or is there some, is there some thought behind it? And there's a lot of people who would say that, no, there's no thought behind it. It's simply a bunch of uh, chemical reactions in a, in a universe that came into being without any intention, without any oversight, and without being directed in any way. And everything that happens is just kind of meaningless. And when you die, you die. And life is just a brief interruption of an eternity of non-existence, yada, yada. We've heard all these arguments before. Other people on the side with religion and God, or there's, some, there's this God that created the universe for a reason, and you're very special, and you have a purpose, and this and that. But morphic resonance really does... Um, imply a large level of that there can be a large level of lack of direction and lack of intent it does seem that the existence of all these systems upon which this world that we're currently living in could be based however it came to be um, 
that's a that's a persistent question. How did it all get going? But the idea that this system in which morphic resonance is the mechanism by which uh, things become right. Um, so the idea of what we know of of his life on Earth, the human sphere of activity, and all the pop culture and all this other stuff. Um, you could have an intentionally created realm which contains morphic resonance, but then everything that happens within it is sort of unintentional and all in terms of patterns enhancing one another over time. And uh, that to me feels like, I just don't, that really doesn't agree with me as a thought. I'm acknowledging it could be true, but it just sort of feels like if it's all just things resonating against one another, it it does feel ultimately kind of it does imply a kind of a pointlessness to a pointlessness to it all. But the one uh, remedy to that kind of thinking is consciousness, right? And um, right, the observer, which does not seem to be something that. Um, could be a part of a morphic of, of this system or, so, or as a result of morphic resonance consciousness seems that it has to transcend the system so in a way you could have a conscious mind right that is uh, engaged in a system of morphic resonance and the phrase I've been using is what pleases the observer right um, let me write that down what pleases the observer which basically states that in addition to these uh, patterns um, self-replicating and reverberating and uh, certain patterns getting stronger, certain patterns getting weaker, that it's all in service of what pleases the observer, right? That the consciousness or consciousnesses um, is ultimately guiding the process in some way because that's a big I mean the idea of you know as I think I've I've broken it down in my cosmological tinkering or thoughts theorizing is that uh, you know we know there's consciousness because we are conscious we're observing this and there's stuff that we're observing that's it. We know that we're conscious and we're observing stuff going on. Um, we know that it seems there has to be some kind of system producing the stuff that, that we, our consciousness is experiencing. And maybe it doesn't really matter so much what I'm experiencing right now, being here in the Overnightscape Studio 3, um, recording the show, and, uh, right... What is generating this? Is this a computer simulation? Is, is it, is it uh, the result of billions of years of morphic resonance? Did God create it? Like, what's behind it, right, does it really matter? I think it, I mean, I would love to know what, what's behind it or how it all works, but, right, the ex, it's the experience and the experiencer. Are, it's all that we can know for sure, Right? But it is kind of also all that exists, right? There's an observer and that which is being observed. 
and then right the behind the scenes of what's being observed would it matter if you lived your whole life was your life generated by a computer by God by morphic resonance by whatever it would have been the same experience anyway the existence of the consciousness and what it seems a world with some degree of intention behind it right I think is more important than the nuts and bolts of what's behind it at least that's a theoretical framework that's helping me from the despair that comes from the thought of a pointless universe but I don't think it is pointless I think there's a point there's a point you build the universe have a point yes yes yeah yeah anyway I'm feeling much better I haven't had any cold medicine today hopefully my voice is getting a little bit back to normal um, I'm glad I don't need any cold medicine you know I I don't want to take it if I don't have to I needed it for most of this week but I don't need it anymore so anyway I'd like to say thank you for patching in to this episode of the Overnightscape hopefully it's been a good experience in this reality for you <laughs> to hear the show um I'm your host, Frank Edward Nora, here in Nutley, New Jersey, in October of 2022 on Earth. This particular timeline on Earth. And we're here in the Ansug, uh, a radio station inside a book. Just go to Ansug.com, O-N-S-U-G.com, to get all your, for all your Ansug needs. No, not on Doug, on Sug. Jeez, I ignored more typos. Okay. <coughs> yeah, look. Here's onsug.com. The latest episode just came out. Overnight's Cape Central about dogs. And myself, PQ, and uh, Dave in Kentucky, Doc Slees in England, and Chad in Alabama, we all talked about dogs. And uh, you can check that episode out. The next one down is a fuse box. It looks like a picture of Satan on there. Fusebox 208, Grimwitz. What? The next one's going to be 209. Wow, Fusebox 209. I wonder what they're going to cook up for that one. Nice. Of course, you can participate in Overnight Escape Central. The next topic is characters. And why don't you, uh, why don't you cook up some thoughts on characters and record them for Mr. PQ River? Check out the episode on how to participate. We want to hear your voice on Overnight Escape Central. And over here on the sidebar, you see uh, On Sug Radio, the complete archive. You click on that, you can hear any of our over 13,000 hours of shows, over 10,000 episodes. Below that, you see a picture of the book. You click on that, you can buy the book, you can download a PDF of the book. The PDFs are all free. This is a non-commercial project. Uh, no money is changing hands. We uh, are very focused on people listening in the near and far future. And uh, we have a very unique style. So all these things... And we're pretty obscure right now, and the fact that you know about us and you're listening to it, you now are in the world of the Ansug. Congratulations. And uh, right, the, the future of this project is intended to be a book. As it moves into the future, it will become a book with all the audio inside the book, right? And the book will exist. My vision is the book with some kind of computer technology inside the book which is possible today. You could attach some sort of MP3 player to it with a, an SD card, but um, I would hope there'd be a bit more elegant technology in the future. 
right? The book will contain all the audio as a physical artifact that you can encounter in the real world and also as a virtual object in the metaverse and metaverses of the future, also containing all of the, the audio. And you can explore it at your leisure. It's a lifetime of listening pleasure. It certainly is. And no matter where you are, when you are, I mean, I could be talking to someone hundreds of years or thousands of years in the future right now. Please try to help uh, get the word out, preserve, and promote the ANSUG. It's, uh, I think, a very distinct, unique record of this time period in human history, which I think is a very, very, very fascinating time. As a member of Generation X, those born between approximately 1965 and 1980, I was born in 67, um, around the time the strawberry alarm clock was really grooving. <laughs> um, uh, right, our perspective, the, it's, it's sort of a Gen X perspective on this changing world, right? We sort of span, Generation X spans the old world and the new world, right? The earlier 20th century with all the wars, depressions, and all that sort of stuff. Right? So we were around all these people that were um, around in those times, you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, our parents and grandparents. And we kind of grew up in a world that was very much based in that, but we were living more a life of leisure as we were the first generation that didn't have to worry about going to Vietnam, fighting in Vietnam. The U.S. hasn't had a, a you know a military draft since then. Obviously, there's been wars, but... Um, We've been living a life of relative ease and we are now with these newer generations, millennials and Gen Zs, who grew up later without so much influence from the early, earlier 20th century. So Generation X is kind of the, the bridge between two different kinds of worlds. And we experienced the shift over from analog electronic technology to digital electronic technology. We were right there as it was happening. So I think we and Generation X have a really unique uh, perspective on all this stuff. And we're not all Gen Xers, but most of us are. A lot of us are. Some of us are late boomers or, you know, some uh, some millennials, but, you know, maybe even some Gen Zs will come on once in a while. Anyway, as time passes, right, uh, we'll all be gone from this planet, but we'll, our voices will live on. And the Ansug is, I think, going to, to be a uh, a very potent record of this time period. I hope you're enjoying it. Yes, indeed. And now we're going to shift gears. This is uh, kind of more of an amorphous resonance rather than morphic resonance. It's an audio exploration, the far corners of the audio universe. Please resonate with this. The other side. Presenting Frankenstein Jr. at the impossible. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, go. Impossibles. Coil Man. He makes the scene when things look mean. Impossibles. Fluid Man. On the spot, the spot that's hot, impossibles. Multiman. Makes Lex 
Circuit crowd, no crooks allowed. Impossibles, impossibles, impossibles.
Section 60 of Poetic Duets. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. 1. The Burial of the Dead. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow feeding a little life with dried tubers. Summer surprised us, coming over the Starnberger Zee with a shower of rain. We stopped in the colonnade, and went on in sunlight, into the Hofgarten, and drank coffee, and talked for an hour. Binga keine Russin, stamm aus Litauen, echt Deutsch. And when we were children, staying at the Archduke's, my cousins, he took me out on a sled, and I was frightened. He said, Marie, Marie, hold on tight, and down we went. In the mountains, there you feel free. I read, much of the night, and go south in the winter. What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say, or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning, striding behind you, or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Frisch weht der Wind, der Heimat zu, mein irisch Kind, wo weilest du? You gave me hyacinths first a year ago. They called me the hyacinth girl. And yet, when we came back, late, from the hyacinth garden, your arms full and your hair wet, I could not speak, and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead, and I knew nothing, looking into the heart of light, the silence. Ed und leer das Meer. Madame Sosostris, famous clairvoyant, had a bad cold, nevertheless is known to be the wisest woman in Europe with a wicked pack of cards. Here, said she, is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor, those are pearls that were his eyes, look! Here is Belladonna, the lady of the rocks, the lady of situations. Here is the man with three staves, and here the wheel, and here is the one-eyed merchant, and this card, which is blank, is something he carries on his back, which I am forbidden to see. I do not find the hanged man. Fear death by water. I see crowds of people walking round in a ring. Thank you. If you see, dear Mrs. Equitone, tell her I bring the horoscope myself. One must be so careful these days. Unreal city, under the brown fog of a winter dawn. A crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many. I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet, flowed up the hill and down King William Street 
to where St. Mary Woolnoth kept the hours, with a dead sound on the final stroke of nine. There I saw one I knew, and stopped him, crying, Stetson, you, who were with me in the ships at Mylai, that corpse you planted last year in your garden, has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? Or has the sudden frost disturbed its bed? Oh, keep the dog far hence that's friend to men, or with his nails he'll dig it up again. You, hypocrite lecteur, mon semblable, mon frère. 2. A Game of Chess The chair she sat in, like a burnished throne, glowed on the marble, where the glass held up by standards wrought with fruited vines, from which a golden cupidon peeped out. Another hid his eyes behind his wing. Doubled the flames of seven-branched candelabra, reflecting the light upon the table, as the glitter of her jewels rose to meet it, from satin cases poured in rich profusion. In vials of ivory and coloured glass unstoppered lurked her strange synthetic perfumes, unguent, powdered, or liquid, Troubled, confused, and drowned the sense in odours, stirred by the air that freshened from the window, these ascended in fattening the prolonged candle flames, flung their smoke into the laquearia, stirring the pattern on the coffered ceiling. Huge sea wood fed with copper burned green and orange, framed by the coloured stone, in which sad light a carved dolphin swam. Above the antique mantle was displayed, as though a window gave upon the sylvan scene, the change of Philomel, by the barbarous king so rudely forced. Yet there the nightingale filled all the desert with inviolable voice, and still she cried, and still the world pursues, jug-jug to dirty ears. And other withered stumps of time were told upon the walls, staring forms leaned out, Leaning, hushing the room enclosed. Footsteps shuffled on the stair. Under the firelight, under the brush, her hair spread out in fiery points, glowed into words, then would be savagely still. My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak! What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? I never know what you are thinking. Think! I think we are in Rat's Alley where the dead men lost their bones. What is that noise? The wind under the door. What is that noise now? What is the wind doing? Nothing again, nothing. Do you know nothing? Do you see nothing? Do you remember nothing? I remember. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Are you alive or not? Is there nothing in your head? But oh, 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 that Shakespeareian rag! It's so elegant, so intelligent! What shall I do now? What shall I do? 
I shall rush out as I am, and walk the street with my hair down so. What shall we do to-morrow? What shall we ever do? The hot water at ten, and if it rains, a closed car at four. And we shall play a game of chess, pressing lidless eyes, and waiting for a knock upon the door. When Lil's husband got demobbed, I said, I didn't mince my words, I said to her myself. Hurry up, please. It's time. Now Albert's coming back. Make yourself a bit smart. He'll want to know what you done with that money he gave you to get yourself some teeth. He did. I was there. You have them all out, Lil, and get a nice set, he said. I swear, I can't bear to look at you. And no more can't I, I said. And think of poor Albert. He's been in the army four years. He wants a good time, and if you don't give it him, those others will, I said. Oh, is there? she said. Something like that, I said. Then I'll know you to thank, she said, and give me a straight look. Hurry up, please, it's time. If you don't like it, you can get on with it, I said. Others can pick and choose if you can't. But if Albert makes off, it won't be for lack of telling. You ought to be ashamed, I said, to look so antique, and are only thirty-one. I can't help it, she said, pulling a long face. It's them pills I took to bring it off, she said. She's had five already and nearly died a young George. The chemist said it would be all right, but I've never been the same. You are a proper fool, I said. Well, if Albert won't leave you alone, there it is, I said. What you get married for if you don't want children? Hurry up, please, it's time. Well, that Sunday Albert was home, they had a hot gammon, and they asked me in to dinner to get the beauty of it hot. Hurry up, please, it's time. Hurry up, please, it's time. Good night, Bill. Good night, Lou. Good night, May. Good night. Ta-ta. Good night. Good night. Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night. Good night. 3. The Fire Sermon The river's tent is broken. The last fingers of leaf clutch and sink into the wet bank. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. The nymphs are departed. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. The river bears no empty bottles, sandwich papers, silk handkerchiefs, cardboard boxes, cigarette ends, or other testimony of summer nights. The nymphs are departed. And their friends, the loitering heirs of city directors, departed, have left no addresses. By the waters of lemon I sat down and wept. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. Sweet Thames, run softly, for I speak not loud or long. But at my back, in a cold blast, I hear the rattle of the bones, and chuckle spread from ear to ear. A rat crept softly through the vegetation, dragging its slimy belly on the bank, while I was fishing in the dull canal, on a winter evening round behind the gas-house, musing upon the king, my brother's wreck, and on the king, my father's death before him white bodies naked on the low damp ground, and bones cast in a little low dry garret, 
rattled by the rat's foot only, year to year. But at my back, from time to time, I hear the sound of horns and motors, which shall bring Sweeney to Mrs. Porter in the spring. Oh, the moon shone bright on Mrs. Porter and on her daughter. They washed their feet in soda water. Et oh, ces voix d'enfants, chantons dans la coupole. Twit, twit, twit. Jug, 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 jug. So rudely forced to do. Unreal City Under the brown fog of a winter noon, Mr. Eugenides, the Smyrna merchant, unshaven, with a pocket full of currants, CIF London, documents at sight, asked me in demotic French to luncheon at the Cannon Street Hotel, followed by a weekend at the Metropole. At the violet hour, when the eyes and back turn upward from the desk, when the human engine waits like a taxi throbbing, waiting, I, Tiresias, though blind, throbbing between two lives, old man with wrinkled female breasts, can see at the violet hour, the evening hour that strives homeward and brings the sailor home from sea. The typist home at tea-time clears her breakfast, lights her stove and lays out food in tins. Out of the window perilously spread her drying combinations touched by the sun's last rays, on the divan or piled, at night her bed, stockings, slippers, camisoles and stays. I, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled dugs, perceived the scene and foretold the rest. I, too, awaited the expected guest. He, the young man carbuncular, arrives, a small house-agent's clerk, with one bold stare, one of the low on whom assurance sits as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. The time is now propitious, as he guesses. The meal is ended. She is bored and tired, endeavours to engage her in caresses, which still are unreproved, if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once. Exploring hands encounter no defence. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. And I, Tiresias, have foresuffered all, enacted on this same divan or bed. I, who have sat by Thebes below the wall, and walked among the lowest of the dead. Bestows one final patronizing kiss, and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. She turns and looks a moment in the glass, hardly aware of her departed lover. Her brain allows one half-formed thought to pass. Well, now that's done, and I'm glad it's over. When lovely woman stoops to folly and paces about her room again, alone, she smooths her hair with automatic hand and puts a record on the gramophone. This music crept by me upon the waters, and along the strand up Queen Victoria Street. Oh, city, city, I can sometimes hear, beside a public bar in Lower Thames Street, the pleasant whining of a mandolin, and a clatter and a chatter from within, where fishmen lounge at noon, where the walls of Manus Marta hold inexplicable splendour of Ionian white and gold. The river sweats oil and tar, the barges drift with the turning tide, 
Red sails, wide to leeward, swing on the heavy spar. The barges wash, drifting logs down Greenwich Reach, past the Isle of Dogs. Where la 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 wa la 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 la. Elizabeth and Lester beating oars, the stern was formed, a gilded shell red and gold. The brisk swell rippled both shores. Southwest wind carried downstream the peal of bells, white towers. Wa-la-la, la Wa-la-la, la-la-la. Trams and dusty trees, Highbury bore me, Richmond and Kew undid me. By Richmond I raised my knees, supine on the floor of a narrow canoe. My feet are at Moorgate, and my heart under my feet. After the event, he wept. He promised a new start. I made no comment. What should I resent? On Margate Sands, I can connect nothing with nothing. The broken fingernails of dirty hands, my people, humble people, who expect nothing. La la. To Carthage then I came. Burning, 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 burning. O Lord, thou pluckest me out. O Lord, thou pluckest. Burning. 4. Death by Water Phlebas the Phoenician, a fortnight dead, forgot the cry of gulls, and the deep sea swell, and the profit and loss. A current under sea picked his bones in whispers. As he rose and fell, he passed the stages of his age and youth, entering the whirlpool. Gentile or Jew, O you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider Phlebas, who was once handsome and tall as you. 5. What the Thunder Said After the torchlight red on sweaty faces, after the frosty silence in the gardens, after the agony in stony places, the shouting and the crying, prison and palace and reverberation, of thunder, of spring, over distant mountains, he who was living is now dead, we who were living are now dying, with a little patience. Here is no water, but only rock, rock, and no water, and the sandy road, the road winding above, among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock one cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry, and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock, dead mountain mouth of carious teeth that cannot spit, here one can neither stand nor lie nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountains, but dry sterile thunder without rain. There is not even solitude in the mountains, but red sullen faces, sneer and snarl. From doors of mud-cracked houses. If there were water and no rock, If there were rock and also water, And water, a spring, A pool among the rock, If there were the sound of water only, 
not the cicada and dry grass singing but sound of water over a rock where the hermit thrush sings in the pine trees drip drop drip drop 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 but there is no water who is the third who walks always beside you when i count there are only you and i together but when i look ahead up the white road there is always another one walking beside you gliding wrapped in a brown mantle hooded i do not know whether a man or a woman but who is that on the other side of you what is that sound high in the air murmur of maternal lamentation who are those hooded hordes swarming over endless plains stumbling in cracked earth ringed by the flat horizon only what is the city over the mountains cracks and reforms and bursts in the violet air falling towers jerusalem athens alexandria vienna london unreal a woman drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings and bats with baby faces in the violet light whistled and beat their wings and crawled head downward down a blackened wall and upside down in air were towers tolling reminiscent bells that kept the hours and voices singing out of empty cisterns and exhausted wells in this decayed hole among the mountains in the faint moonlight the grass is singing over the tumbled graves about the chapel there is the empty chapel only the wind's home it has no windows and the door swings dry bones can harm no one only a cock stood on the roof tree cocco rico cocco rico in a flash of lightning then a damp gust bringing rain Ganga was sunken, and the limp leaves waited for rain, while the black clouds gathered far distant, over Himavant. The jungle crouched, humped in silence, then spoke the thunder. Da! Dutta! What have we given? My friend, blood shaking my heart, the awful daring of a moment's surrender which an age of prudence can never retract by this and this only we have existed which is not to be found in our obituaries or in memories draped by the beneficent spider or under seals broken by the lean solicitor in our empty rooms da diadphem I have heard the key turn in the door once and turn once only. We think of the key, each in his prison. Thinking of the key, each confirms a prison. Only at nightfall, ethereal rumours revive for a moment a broken Coriolanus. Da. Damyata. The boat responded gaily to the hand expert with sail and oar. The sea was calm. Your heart would have responded gaily, when invited, beating obedient to controlling hands. I sat upon the shore, fishing, 
with the arid plain behind me. Shall I at least set my lands in order? London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Poi s'ascosa nel fuoco che li affina, quando fiam uti chelidon. Oh, swallow, swallow, la pranta qui ten alla tua aboli. These fragments I have shored against my ruins. Why then I'll fit you, Hieronimo's mad again. Datta, diadvam, damyatta. Shanti. Shanti, Shanti. End of poem. End of Poetic Duets. Recording by Newgate Novelist and Algie Pug.